This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing so perfect that can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I am Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, May 25th, 2012. It's episode number 69. We would like to say thanks very much to our sponsors today, Squarespace.com, Shopify.com, and WarbyParker.com. Tell you about them more as the program continues. We also want to thank very much our good friend, Joey Raphael. He's the guy behind a lot of the artwork and uh, really all of the artwork and the logo that you see at 5x5.tv. He has a great set of vector icons out there that you can go and buy and download and use. They live at Symbolicons.com, and he has made the bandwidth for this episode possible. So thanks very much, Symbolicons.com. How are you doing, John Syracuse, on this lovely Friday morning afternoon doing fine thinking about scooby snacks scooby snacks were those introduced before or after scrappy Doo? oh i think before they didn't give him any superpowers though but didn't scrappy have scrappy snacks that gave him some kind of no uh, maybe I'm, I'm trying to block that out yeah it was horrible someone just suggested scoopy snacks in the chat room scoopy who is scoopy there is no scoopy <laughs> Skiing Rob. I know I mumble, but, you know, it's... The chat room's back, by the way. What does that mean? Back on the site. But it was always there. I was, you're, you're linking to it, you mean? From, I mean, from it's it's site. embedded in the live page again. All right. Well, I, I give that a thumbs up. Yeah. Just for you. That's good. All right, so are we ready? Yeah, we're, we're already going. All right, this is it. This, this is the show. This is the show. So we're probably going to have uh, more feedback today, as you can imagine, about patents. So the follow-up will have abbreviated feedback, because last, last show I read a lot of people's emails, and people continue to write lots of long things. Uh, and if I don't read your message on today's show, it doesn't mean I didn't read it or think it was cool or thought the ones that I'm going to read are better. And if I do read your message and I leave out what you consider to be the, the main point of the message, it doesn't mean I didn't read it and absorb it. I'm just, I'm just picking and choosing pieces here. As I, if, if I let this go forever, it'll just the entire show will be about patents for the next month. So I really need to just trim it down. So this will be a trimmed down version. So please don't get angry if I read your email and just read the one offhand funny sentence you put at the end and ignore the entire body of the email in which you were very articulate and intelligent. <laughs> I read that part and appreciated and absorbed it, but I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is, is extricate myself from this topic. Uh, and history has shown that it usually takes me about three shows to do that. So we'll see. <laughs> uh, and although I was thinking about patents, <laughs> uh, another meta thing is like, they're surprisingly on topic for the show, right? Yeah. Because it's, you know, what's wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Patents, patents is what's wrong. Right. It's one of the things that's wrong. And it's certainly related to Apple and technologies and businesses, right? So it's actually on topic. So it's not like we're talking about soda streams and spending three shows with follow-up about it. Right. <laughs> Who would do that? I don't know. Some, some other show. Foolish. All right. So uh, one of the things I said on the last show about patents is that it's not as if people in the technology industry anyway are combing through patents for awesome ideas. Uh, and that's like, oh, these ideas have been shared with the world so now everyone can benefit from them. So if you want to make something cool, maybe someone has come up with a great idea and they will license the patent to you. So go through the patent portfolio and find great ideas to, to figure out what you're going to make. 
Uh, and Matthew Abbott wrote in to say that not only does that not happen in his industry, uh, but he, he works for a software company, but his company specifically tells the developers to not look at patents ever because if it turns out that they have looked at patents and they get sued, uh, apparently you're subject to triple damages if they find out you knowingly infringed on a patent. So the, the decree is do not look at patents. Remember those things that are out there for sharing innovations amongst people? Well, don't even look at them because if you even know about that they exist and someone finds out in a discovery procedure in a lawsuit, we could be subject to triple damages. Mm. But just one more absurdity of the uh, patent system. Not quite working to foster innovation. All right, so here's an article about Jack Andraka that many people sent me. He's a 15-year-old who won some sort of science fair put on by Intel for a new method of detecting pancreatic cancer that's like cheaper and faster or whatever. Uh, and this article, which was in, uh, it was, the story was all over the web, but it was sent, the URL was sent to me by both people who uh, are against patents and for them. So they were, both parties would send this to me and say, see, this supports my argument that patents are awesome or that patents should be abolished. The same article, right? And I pointed this out to a few people and asked them by email or through Twitter to think about why the people who have the opposite point of view of them would have sent it to me in support of their argument. Just, you know, to see if the two parties could come to some sort of agreement like that, that I see how this supports patents or doesn't support them or whatever. Oh, and by the way, a patent is pending for this for this test. This 15-year-old uh, made this test. Obviously, he filed for a patent, right? Uh, <laughs> and I, I think most people wanted to engage me if they said, see, look how this uh, this supports your idea that patents should be abolished. And they, and they expected me to go, yeah, right on. Or they would say, see, look how this supports the idea that we need patents to, to get awesome innovation like this. Uh, as my friend pointed out to me, and I agree with, the reason I didn't engage it with most of these people is that I don't think this story supports patents or supports the abolition of patents. I think it's just a thing that happened. Right? I don't I don't think there's any like it it's not it's not uh, in a the unique thing about it is that a young kid did something that's, you know, you know, probably the loved one, young people do things that display great intelligence that the adults couldn't do. Like that's the story, but it has nothing to do with patents. It's just something that happened. And you come up with a good idea and you live in the current system where there are patents, you file for a patent on it. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't come up with that idea with, without patents. It doesn't mean that he would have come out come out with that idea of patents. We don't know what motivated him to do this. It's it's neutral, I think. That's boring. It's boring for it to be neutral, but that's what I think it is. So you can feel free to disagree. The link is in the show notes. Read about this 15-year-old and his great invention and decide what you think it means for patents. I think it means nothing for patents. <laughs> this next story certainly does come down on one side of the patent issue. This is a story in Wired about a company that most people have probably never heard of, and I certainly didn't, called Rockstar. No, not the people who made Grand Theft Auto. A different company called Rockstar. I guess, I guess there's a suffix on one or both of those names to differentiate them. Uh, so a while back, Nortel went bankrupt, the big Canadian telecom company. And as part of their sort of liquidation, bankruptcy, whatever procedures, they sold off all their patents to the highest bidder. Do you remember when that was going on? Vaguely. Yeah, and it was like it was like Google wanted to pay. Oh uh, right, yes, billion. yes, and they and wasn't the what Google wanted to pay wasn't it Pi or something like that? And yeah, like Google was messing with it, like what the, uh, what they wanted to bid, and Google ended up getting outbidded by a consortium uh, of a bunch of other companies, including Apple and Microsoft. And so the final sale price was four point five billion dollars. 
Uh, and that's how much collectively all those other companies bid against Google, which was kind of on its own, and they won the patents. It was like 6,000 patents, and these are like super duper, super dumb patents. So we were rating patents on how dumb they are, you know, again, sending information over wireless network or purchasing something over a wireless network or looking at a screen with your eyeballs or whatever the hell they're but like these are really old school crazy you know patents uh and we all assume when that happened it's like yeah business as usual big companies want to have as many patents as possible as part of their war chest as part of this mutually assured destruction scenario where they there's a deterrent or they have to defend themselves against other people's patents uh and it's not, you know, and so a company goes bankrupt and the vultures come kind of like an estate sale and everyone comes up, Ooh, what can we get? Well, they got the patents and they paid a lot of money for them, but they were, they were super dumb. So I guess it was worth uh, that amount, you know, the dumber your patents, the better. Uh, but this rock star company has been created and funded by these people who bought these patents and given the patents in question. And what they do is hire engineers to examine other products in the industry and see if they violate any of the patents that are in this patent portfolio. Uh, and then if they find out that it infringes, they contact the company that makes the product and ask for licensing fees for the patents. Uh, and the, the, the article says that demand is backed by the implicit threat of a patent lawsuit. So, you know, they'll buy just a bunch of routers or whatever and have engineers on staff reverse engineering saying, does this router violate any of the 4,000 patents we have? Uh, and if they do, they get licensing fees for it. Right. And here's the, the CEO of the company, uh, answering a question in the Wired article about like how this, how this business works. He says, pretty much anybody out there is infringing. It would be hard for me to envision that there are high-tech companies out there that don't use some of the patents in our portfolio. So this is, this is coming right out and saying what I said on the last show, that everybody isn't violating everybody else's patents. It's simply impossible not to. You can't make a technology product and not be violating someone's patents. Uh, and the other thing, in case this isn't clear from the previous discussions, you're not knowingly violating them in most cases. You don't even know those patents exist. You just made something. And little do you know that the thing you made infringes on tons of other patents that you've never seen. So it's not like you're, you know, not only are the patents really broad and dumb, but you don't even know you're infringing them. You just think you're doing something. Like, I just made a thing. And you have no idea how many patents you're infringing or whose they are. So this company is out there uh, trying to find out who's infringing on their patents. And this, this company, this rock star company, of course doesn't make anything of its own. So it's a classic patent troll in that like, you can't sue them back and say, aha, well, you're violating my dumb patents that I have. Even if you are a big giant company, you know, that has tons of patents, you can't retaliate against this company. Uh, so they are effectively a patent troll, just like Intellectual Ventures. Only this patent troll is app backed by Apple, Microsoft, and a bunch of other companies. The article does say that EMC, which was part of the bidding for that patent portfolio, is not part of this company. But every other company is implicated in this, uh, in this game here. As the one of the people in the article says, this is the sport of kings. Ordinary people can't play in this arena. Uh, the <laughs> idea is that, like, the sport of kings is is buying patent portfolios for billions of dollars and then going around and extracting money from them. Because, like, what what did you pay those billions of dollars for? Presumably, you paid for something that was worth something. And how is it worth something to extract the value from those patents? You must hunt down. You must be a patent troll. Hunt down people and extract money from them. For, and the safest way to do that is not to have Apple finding people who violate these patents and attacking them because then they would Apple would be attacked back because all of Apple's products violate their products, you know. Uh, but little people can't uh, be involved in this thing at all. Like, if you're a small company and, th and these guys find you, forget it. You can't even afford to litigate the lawsuit even if you're 100% in the right. There was a quote in there somewhere about this. About how, I mean, it's basically, it's 
not fostering innovation is oh, here's at the bottom the creation of these conglomerate conglomerations of patents what this does is create a barrier to entry for the little guy it makes it much harder to break into the market if you're a creator or an innovator because if you're just starting out you cannot field a single patent lawsuit. It will crush your company. Even if you're 100% in the right, but you aren't 100% in the right, you're probably violating because everybody violates patents. Uh, so depending on the benevolence of the people holding, of the big companies holding these patents, they can squash you at will or make you agree to get acquired for less than you think you're worth or just push you out of business or, you know, uh, you can't even afford to litigate it and you may not be able to afford to license it if the licensing is not a reasonable arrangement. So many people were asking, like, you know, how is Apple doing with patents or other companies? Like, like it's just it's standard operating procedure. And apparently patent trolling is becoming standard operating procedure. Like, uh, if you want to ding Apple for something, uh, for doing evil things, this is r- probably higher up on the list than, you know, putting DRM in their music. Because here they are actively extracting money in an evil way. And you can contrast this to what Nortel did with the patents when it had it. Nortel did not go out and form a shell company to be a patent troll to extract money. It, it encouraged all its employees to patent things because it thought patents were neat and rewarded them for it, but it used them purely as a defensive portfolio. And it, apparently it was quite a defensive portfolio uh, because it had stuff that covered very broad things. But now when this consortium bought up these patents for $4.5 billion, they want some return on their investment. And so they created a patent troll to go out and say, get some return on that investment, either by selling the patents to people, by licensing them, or eventually by suing people. Uh, this rockstar company has not yet sued anybody, but presumably they will eventually. The CEO himself said he expects that to happen. Uh, and making money from patents, like patenting things and then extracting money from other companies, is, is actually a pretty big business. The article points out that Qualcomm, the company that makes it all like the radio chips inside your cell phones and everything. Yeah makes $4 billion a year licensing its patents on mobile stuff. Like, you know, it had these ideas, whatever these ideas were, whether they're good ideas, bad ideas, broad ideas that anyone could have thought of, or really clever ideas, we don't know. But it makes $4 billion from them, from licensing them to other people. And IBM makes $1 billion a year. That's not small change. Like, you could, if $4 billion a year is enough revenue to run a successful company. Like, you could say Qualcomm, like, I don't know how much Qualcomm makes. They probably make way more than that. But if you bought Qualcomm's patents, you could sit there and do nothing for the next 20 years or however long these patents take to expire and get $4 billion a year. All because you had a great idea that was worth apparently worth $4 billion a year or lots of great ideas or lots of great ideas that are really super obvious. Anyway, depressing. Uh, more depressing stuff. There's an NPR story that a lot of people sent me on the Planet Money program. Uh, that's a, The title is, Can You Patent a Steak? Some company <laughs> wants to patent Here's what they're patenting. Not not like a cut of steak, but like a whole new, like an engineered steak or something? The the story is it's a patent for steak, but the the quote here is, the patent actually claims the kind of knife strokes that you make in order to create this cut of meat. You take this muscle, you make cuts here, here, and here, you end up with this Vegas strip steak, and that's what they would like to patent. Hmm. The kind of knife strokes you make in order to create a cut of meat. It's kind of like, you know, patenting the idea like, if I give you a piece of clay and you cut it into this shape and this order with these strokes, that's patented super dumb that's not even technology that's just super dumb uh, so yeah depressing in the show notes now De- depressing show notes yeah on the, on the apple topic that's what people ask about i talked about the rockstar thing so you know it's not just it's apple microsoft is everybody but you know intellectual ventures gets all the bad press for being a patent troll but apple has a patent troll too uh, intellectual ventures is the king of the patent trolls but that doesn't mean that apple is, is any better here uh 
And and people ask me that about the patents. Like, well, you're against patents, but you like Apple and they have tons of patents and everything. I The same way I feel about patents in general, I feel about Apple's patents. I don't think Apple deserves to have exclusive rights to any of the ideas it developed uh, that it patented. Whatever, you know, or that it thinks it developed or that it patented first or whatever. And by the way, we didn't even discuss that. The whole idea that Apple, that America's system uh, switching from... I don't know what the old system was, but they, they already did switch it or trying to switch it to first to file. So basically, if we both have the same idea, but I patented first, I get all the exclusive rights to that idea and you get bupkis. Uh, and that's supposedly a simplifying thing. So there's less contention in the law system. But but again, if you have simultaneous invention, which a lot of these things have like, oh, well, I have the patent on. I have the patent on pinch to zoom. It's like, well, here's 8000 other people who had the idea of pinch to zoom before you. Oh, well, then go ahead and try to sue me and invalidate my patent. I hope you have a couple million dollars. Right, that's how that's how the patent system works with works in, in scare quotes. Uh, so all those things that Steve Jobs totally felt like, oh, we've patented the heck out of iOS and and all these great ideas. We don't think people should copy them. Uh, I don't agree with Apple there. I don't agree with Steve Jobs. I don't think they have exclusive rights to those ideas. I think people should be able to copy those ideas. You know, they can't <laughs> they can't make something called the iPhone because that's trademark and if they, you know, violated the trade dress of making something that looks like an iPhone, you might have an argument there because there's consumer confusion. But the idea of pinch to zoom, I don't, you know, I don't even know if Apple owns that. I'm just making that up. But those type of things, uh, I don't think they have exclusive rights to that because I don't believe patents should exist, right? So uh, I, my view on this is consistent with respect to Apple, whether you agree with my view or not, that I, it's, Apple is not a special case. Uh, and the thing is, although Steve Jobs and Apple itself seems to be all gung-ho for patents, what I think Apple deserves money for is by making products people want to buy. Like, so say Apple patents didn't exist and you could, any all the stuff that Apple patent you could do. You can make things multi-touch, pinch to zoom and controls that swipe and things that detect your faces there and, and noise cancellation, microphone, like all the stuff that Apple has patents on. I don't even know what it is. I'm just making it up. Like, say you had complete unfettered free access to all those ideas. Can you make something better than the iPhone? It's that's not the hard part. Like that's just an artificial constraint on the people out there. You say, "Oh, go ahead. You can you can do whatever you want." Like short of actually literally copying our software, which, you know, that's that's the code that we wrote. You have to write your own code, right? You have to manufacture your own phones. You can't just like steal our supplies and steal our our uh, you know, actual physical goods and sell them with your own name on them. But you have access to all of our ideas, all of our patents, all of our quote-unquote inventions about how phones could work and how the UI could work and how touch interface can work all that stuff. Go ahead. Do you think you can make a better, something better than the iPhone? No, you can't. And that's why Apple makes tons of money because they make products that people want to buy. That's where their value is. Their value is not in their patents. That's just like this side game where they collect these things that have some legal meaning and fight each other with them and, and, and squish little guys and extract money from other companies with it. It's, it's completely a drag on, on everything. And I think Apple would be completely safe if there were no patents. I don't think suddenly there would be tons of competitors making better products. I mean, and according to Apple, Samsung is violating tons of their patents. But does anyone think those Samsung phones are, uh, you know, equivalent to an iPhone or better than an iPhone or even as good as an iPhone? People who like iPhones like iPhones. Uh, and they like them because of what they are, not because there's some super secret patented idea in there. You know. This is my slight diversion into Apple. Okay. We'll, we'll no, well, you've got to connect it. You've got to tie it all together. Yeah, we'll come back to them later more. You want to take a little respite and I could do the first sponsor? Sure. All right. So first sponsor is a new sponsor. It's Warby Parker at warbyparker.com. The simple way to think of these guys, $95 prescription glasses. Uh, the way I think of them, 
they're the glasses that I wear every day, all day, and I have for a couple years. They are awesome glasses. They're plastic frames. That's what they do. They've also got prescription sunglasses. But what, what makes them different, besides the fact that the glasses that they sell are not just sort of the generic plain Jane ones that you would find in a, a discount store, uh, but they're cool. They're, you know, I hate to use the word trendy, but they are a little bit trendy. But they're also retro. They're also classic. And they have this really cool thing called home try-on. You go to the site, you pick out five pairs that you'd like to try on. They send them to you in this really nice case. They're wrapped. Now, obviously, they're not going to put your prescription in all five of them and send them to you. So they just got the blanks in there. But they send these things to you. And you have them for five days. You can try them on. You can show them to your friends. You can take pictures, send it to mom. Say, which one of these pairs looks really good? And then you pick the one that you like, you send all five back, and you tell them, yeah, I want, I want my glasses made up in this one. Then they send them to you. None of that costs, any, obviously, when you buy your glasses, it costs money, but none of this part of the home try-on, it doesn't cost any money. It's all free, and you can do it multiple times. They don't care. They just want you to be happy. They got free shipping. If, if you're not happy if something's wrong, it's free return. So anyway, you need to go and check these guys out. We're thrilled to have these guys as a sponsor. These have been my glasses for years. And uh, some people were saying, because, you know, John, we've got a lot of, we've, you and I have talked about uh, vision before, right? And whose vision is worse and what you do. I wear high index lenses. I have for many, many years. And I saw some people on Twitter were saying, well, do they make high index lenses? The answer is yes. Uh, of course they do. Uh, it's something that they will, apparently they'll automatically determine that you need high index based on your prescription, but you can also put a little note in there after you do your order. And it's just, if you want high index and you know you need it, They'll do it for you. I think there is a little bit of an upcharge. So you got to look into that. It's not much. Uh, but yeah, all of mine are high index and they, they do a bang up job doing it. You can learn more. Check out all the different uh, glasses that they make. They've got a new spring selection, a summer frames coming out, prescription sunglasses. Great guys over at Warby Parker, W-A-R-B-Y Parker.com. Thanks very much to them for making the show possible. It's kind of like the Zappos strategy where they make it really easy to, you know, you was like, oh, I don't want to buy shoes online because I don't, how do I know if they fit me or whatever? And Zappos is like, hey, we'll send you the shoes, try them on. You don't like them, send them back. And that lowers your barrier to doing shoes online. You're like, oh, hey, I guess I'll try that. And right. then, you know, 8,000 shoes later, you're addicted. I got to try this for my next glasses because I don't like shopping for glasses. And I, I would be happy to get five frames in the mail and try them on. Yeah, they send them uh, to you in a nice little case. It's, I hate to say that it's Apple-esque, but it is the, the whole unboxing experience uh, is, is pretty cool. Here's the question, though. When you pick the frame that you want and you send the five back to them, when you get the thing back with your lenses stuck in it, is it the exact one that no. you no. picked, or is it just that same frame but a different one? It is that, it is that same frame but a, a different... Uh, is that same frame but not the, same, the very same. Now, I will say I've done this, I've done this in a few times. Uh, where I uh, would, you know, put out the order for the frames and got them back. And I, I, there's no way to prove this, but they seemed like new frames to me. And all of the glasses that I got that, you know, it doesn't seem like they're recycling. I don't know how they do it, but it, they're not sending you something that's all like greasy and used up and nasty. They, it seems very fresh and new. And you very much seem like the first recipient. I'll leave that to them to figure out how they do it. But no, it's not the same. So if like uh, people were also asking which frames I have, I've got a few, but the ones that I wear the most are called the Sibleys. And, uh, uh, you know, I really like those. And they're, the frame that I picked is identical to the one they sent me, but I don't, I don't know the details. I don't know how they make that happen. 
And that's much cheaper, like $95. I can tell you going to a regular glasses store, $95 is much cheaper than you will pay if you go to a real glasses store. Is that for glasses, for frames and lenses? Yeah, 95 bucks for frames and lenses. That's crazy talk. Yeah. You got to do that next time. I think, I think they, you know, they, could, they also do monocles, something you could consider. Yeah. And the high index, I know we discussed this before, but I will put out another plea for, you know, materials engineers. <laughs> if there are not patents stopping your work, please discover a material that has a higher index than whatever the highest index thing we have now because people have bad vision and want skinny glasses. And so I, I too, always use high index. And I would like them to be higher index. If we can get some sort of transparent aluminum thing going on here, I don't know what's going to, you know, affect the index of refraction of these materials. But this, I think, should be an area of research. If only self-selected because nerds need thick glasses and then they should be also the same ones discovering the materials with higher index. Right. So scientists, please get on that. Uh, All right. So the next bit of follow-up is from Hans Petter Ikmo or something similar. Uh, He pointed me to a TED talk by Joanna Blakely. Johanna Blakely? Uh, And it talks about the fashion industry. And it talks about how the fashion industry has no intellectual property rights, only trademarks. That's something that most people not involved in fashion don't think about. But basically, through various court cases, they've decided, according to this abstract here, that apparel design is too utilitarian to qualify for copyright protection and apparently also for patent protection. Uh, And this talk is about how the fashion industry is more valuable as a consequence of this open creative process. Mm. And so basically, anyone can copy a piece of clothing. Like, you can design a garment, like, you know, what color it is, how you cut the materials, how you sew it together. Uh, anybody can copy that. Perfectly legal. Because the courts have decided that there's no legal protection for, for what you just did. You created this thing. You decide, you designed a pair of pants that's sewn together in a particular way with the pockets in a particular location that helps you call, carry your iPhone in, in a special way so it doesn't get crushed when you sit down on it. But, you know, like, <laughs> so like, like, a, like a regular affordable retail store that you and I might go to, they could make a pair of pants that's identical to or as close as they can make it to the pair of pants you'd get in some shishi fancy store and the shishi fancy label company can't sue them and say you copied our stuff. Right. And this is like this gets back to a lot of email. I think I, I cut this one out, but a lot of people telling me like, oh, you don't you understand? It's such a clear difference between an invention and an idea. An idea is let's make some pants that don't cause my iPhone to break when I sit down with them in the back pocket. But the invention is how do you do that? How do you cut together the pieces of material? How do you stitch them? What materials do you make the pants out of? That's the invention. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're making fashion, apparently the courts have decided that is not patentable. It's not copyrightable. You can come up with an awesome idea for how to cut together pants and make a cool, high-quality thing of pants. And the textile industry is such that I bet other people could also copy that pretty well. It's, it's not like we have the Star Trek replicator, but it's pretty close. It's not like you're doing anything super fancy where they, well, I can't figure out how they sewed this together. They'll figure it out, right? They can make an exact copy. So how, how, why is anyone in the fashion industry ever motivated to make new garments? If I can do all this hard work to make this awesome looking, very comfortable, breathable, utilitarian, whatever the uh, things that you're inventing, whatever the advantages of your clothing are, why would anyone make a pair of clothing if you know you're going to do all that hard work? Granted, it's not as much hard work as, as spending $20 billion finding a new drug, but it, it's some amount of hard work. Don't you deserve to be, you know, doesn't, why doesn't the fashion industry crumble? Uh, so that's what this talk is about. Uh, and this, this also, by the way, it goes to show what happens. Uh, the, the companies like to have these government-sanctioned monopolies. They like to have protectionism from, you know, wh- whoever's making the laws, right? And so 
they went through all these court cases that I'm unfamiliar with, except for through this video, but I don't remember when they happened. Uh, and the end result was, okay, well, you can't patent it and you can't copyright it, but you got your trademark. You know, because we don't want people selling things pretending to be Nike when they're not Nike, because that's trademark infringement. It confuses the consumer. They really need to know what they're, they're buying, right? So the fashion industry, like any big business, they're not magnanimous. They're not like, hey, we figured out a way to innovate without legal protection. It's like, no, we want as much legal protection as we can get because we're a business and that's how businesses operate. Uh, so they attempt to exploit the one legal uh, area in which they have a foot to stand on, which is trademark. And I never thought about this before, but I think people will know where I'm going here. So what they do is they stick their logo entirely over everything they sell. You ever see a Louis Vuitton bag? Maybe you haven't seen a Louis Vuitton I mean, bag. I'm, I'm sure I've seen. It, they have the logo all over it's the, the, well, the whole bag. material is made from the, L, right. the LV thing, like a Gucci bag and all these others. And that's, yeah. that's, and, that's and, something you can't do. And, that's, and the, the reason they're doing that is because, like, fine, that's the only thing people can't copy. We're going to cover our damn stuff with our logo. <laughs> and it's not because they thought it would be cool or it looked good or it's part of fashion. It's because that's the only way they can. They well, can, and also it's, it's certainly a way for the owner of the bag to say publicly to the world, I am the type of person, notice I didn't say woman, who <laughs> would have a bag covered with logos on it from this high-end designer. And it, it's a status thing. Right, uh, but like it's, it's comical that they've gone to this extreme to just cover this thing with logos. Yeah. Just like ah, be, and, and never mind. We know they just make illegal copies anyway. But at least they're illegal. At least they have some legal recourse. Were they able to track down the Singaporean conglomerate that's making these cra- these things? And you know, this international law is crazy. Who knows? They can you know you can find imitation stuff, but that's why they've got their logo all over everything. Uh, and one of the other points made early in this video is. Uh, you know, so so everyone can copy each other. They can just look at what you design and they just make clothes just like it. Uh, this is why you have fashion trends. What what is a trend? It's it's like oh, this year short skirts are in short skirts with a particular cut up this area and sewn together in this way, made of this material. Well, if only one guy could do that and patent it or copyright it, then you wouldn't see as many fashion trends because everyone else would have to make a slightly different skirt. Like they would try to go in that direction, but not do closer whether they get sued, right? Uh, but you have fashion trends because it's legal for all the fashion industry to copy each other. Uh, and it made me think about technology trends. Like, do you remember when the iMac came out, suddenly everything you could buy was made of teal plastic? You know, irons, uh, tea, tea kettles, like just everything, you know, and computers, of course. Everything was covered with teal plastic because the iconic thing about the iMac was that it was teal plastic. Now, if you made something that was shaped exactly like the iMac uh, and you know, have the exact same materials and everything like that, then that would be, that would be in violation of, you know, trade dress and all the other things that they, they sued for. Right. But there was a trend and it was, you know, they copied as much as they could. It's like, well, we can't copy the exact design because we'll probably get sued and lose. Uh, and Apple can't patent the idea of teal plastic. They can patent a particular feature of their case or whatever they think that they can get away with patenting for, or the method of manufacture or a mechanism for the little door on the side of God knows what they patented on that thing. Right. Uh, but people tried to copy it as much as they could. Uh, and, and if it was like the fashion industry, though, everyone could have made computers that looked exactly like the iMac. They couldn't say the word iMac on them. They couldn't have Apple logos, but they could have looked exactly like the iMac in the same way that fashion industry can make things that look exactly like it. And then again, if there was a big line of computers that look exactly like the iMac, you get into, for electronics anyway, you get into trade dress where you have to make sure you're not confusing customers into thinking they're getting uh, an item that they're not. Uh, but it made me think about the 
the phones look like iPhones. Everyone likes to put up the graphic. Like, here's what phones look like before right. the iPhone came along. Yeah, and this was the big change that came. Yeah, they had keyboards, and, and they all kind of look the same, too. Like, it was, it was, there are fashion trends in the industry. Like, oh, we think the way you make a phone is you put a, a physical keyboard, and then you put a little screen on top of it, and it's kind of like a bar of soap, and that's what they look like, right? Like the BlackBerry thing. Like, whoever the, the successful vendor is, the other people are like, we're going to make a phone like that. So when the, when the iPhone came along, it's like, no, they're just rectangles with a big screen. And now every phone, every smartphone looks like a rectangle with a big screen. Uh, but you can't look too much like the iPhone, because then Apple comes to get you and say, oh, well, you know, our design, you're violating these aspects of our design. Uh, and that doesn't fly in the, in the fashion industry. You can't say, look, this shirt is exactly the same as our shirt. I can hold them up to each other and they're identical. The only thing different about them is the logo on the tag. Can't we sue them? Well, no, you can't because that's not how it works in the fashion industry. And yet, somehow, fashion continues to be created and people continue to make money from it. And companies continue to find ways to leverage the few government-sanctioned monopolies on intellectual property that they do have. So, come watch that video. In the show notes, 5 by 5tv slash hypercritical slash 69 if you're following along. Uh, Martin Simpson wrote in. He told me he's been fighting IP all his life. Uh, he w- was part of a game development company in the 90s, and he has two patents to his name uh, that he, uh, presumably he filed when he was part of that company. Uh, and now, oh, he's got some comments on the, on the drug industry we'll all throw in here. This is kind of disjointed because he wrote a long email. I'm just pulling pieces out of it. He says, a friend of his used to work in marketing in the pharmaceutical industry, and he saw his friend's frustration with the way that industry works. He says, there are solutions to health problems out there that will not ever be developed because the products are off-patent. By this, I mean that the drugs have been proved safe in one area of health, but are now off-patent and not being pursued in other areas, even though research would indicate that they have great benefit, because no patent could be granted to them, so the companies would not have a monopoly and hence not be able to make the return they require. So the idea is like, you patent the drug for a particular purpose, you sell it, the patent expires, you're not really interested anymore in whether that drug could also help sufferers of another condition. Because you can't get that patent back. And without monopoly rights, it's not even worth pursuing. So you won't go spend the money to do all the trials to, to qualify this drug for some other thing. Uh, and the, the main reason I include this is that he's, he's created an iOS app now called Spectralizer. Hmm. And when he was creating this app, he had to keep things simple in the application to avoid violating his own patents. <laughs> the two patents he got at the game company... <laughs> He had to make sure his own app didn't violate. And this, this gets back to the whole ownership thing. We we're talking about the suggestions of, of how other countries do things with patents. Like uh, in this country, patents are just like property. You know, Nortel goes out of business. You can buy their patents. You didn't invent all that stuff. All the people that invented that stuff, half of them are probably dead by now. But now you've got the patents, right? So he worked for this company. And when you work for a company, any patents you get are usually the, the property of the company, right? So when he left the company, he left those patents behind. And when it's time for him to make his iOS app, he can't use the quote-unquote inventions that he patented under his name because they don't belong to him. They belong to the company. And they said, well, you, that, you know, you got paid in exchange for those patents and it was part of your employment agreement that when you, when you make that invention and patent, it belongs to the company. And so it's all perfectly fair and money is changing hands and the patents have value. And if that company goes under, someone can buy those patents or whatever. But it's certainly not helping. So if it was like, oh, we have to help the inventor. Not that I even agree with that anyway. But if you, if you subscribe to that theory that the inventor deserves exclusive rights to this, shouldn't they travel with the inventor? And not be, those rights to be allowed to be sold off. I mean, it's like any other rights. If you can sell off any other rights, why can't you sell off patent rights? Well, I don't think those rights should exist in the first place. Uh, so that clarifies it for me. But for people who think that inventors deserve their rights, does it mean they should travel with them? And why are these rights different from any other rights that you can sell? Well, and you if know? if you consider that, I mean, how have we talked about what happens to a patent if the patent owner 
goes away or dies or the company is dissolved and without selling them? I mean, what do we know what happens? I'm assuming it's like any other kind of property, right? Like, I mean, if it's if you own it, then if you have a will, it goes to whoever, you know, like it's, it's like anything else. Like what happens to your house when you die? It's just it's just a piece of property or a legal right. You know, I, I don't it's not like copyright where there's like a timer as soon as you right. die that it's like X number of years. I, I don't know. I don't know what the law is uh, involving these things, but certainly it's not the case that it travels with the inventor. And if does it ever even lie with the inventor? Like the Twitter had that thing that you talked about a, a while back. Oh yeah, the the pull uh, pull to refresh thing, right? Uh, no, it was like the the agreement for their employees saying, hey, "Oh right, 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 right." Yeah, where you, they were saying like, "If you invent it here, we'll protect it, but we, you know, we're not we're not getting patents so that we can control things. We're just getting patents to, I guess, to because we're innovating." Well, they were trying to say that. Uh, if we if you uh, if we patent something that you did, we won't sue anybody over it unless you give the thumbs up. Like giving the the create the inventor of the patent, uh, like the, the say so of like oh don't worry you're not you're not going to work here patent something awesome and then we're going to take your patent and sue this company and you think you're going to be all pissed because you think it's unfair and never really wanted to sue anybody you know we won't sue anybody with your patents unless you say it's okay. As many people pointed out when the story was going around, there's no way to make that kind of agreement in such a way that it is actually binding because the company is in the driver's seat and the terms are vague and they make the terms and they can change the terms at any time. And like, there's just really no good legal way to make that work the way you want. Uh, and it, there's, you know, it's not even guaranteed that, uh, you know, so what? So if, if one dude thinks it's okay to sue everybody else, then it's okay. Like, uh, they're, what they're basically trying to do is give more more power to the quote unquote inventor. <laughs> you know, say, oh, we're not going to take your patents and do evil things. And unless you say it's okay, then we will. But we, you know, try, trying to reassure their employees, I applaud the effort to try to they, because they know, like, all good thinking nerds hate tech patents and software patents in particular, right? And they want those people to come work for them, and they don't want them to think like, oh, I'm not going to go work there. They're going to like patent my stuff and sue people with it and i'll feel all gross like that guy who wrote in before it's like what do i do i work for a company they want to make me to make patents on my software inventions and i don't like it uh should i quit should i do you know twitter wants to attract employees so they're trying to make an agreement that helps with that so i i do applaud that effort but i think it's tough i and you know it's like even if the people are completely like their hearts in the right place they're trying to do the right thing the people who own those assets you know 30 years from now after Twitter has gone under and been acquired or whatever, those people aren't going to be as like-minded and they're certainly not going to be bound by this agreement because things will have changed hands so many times. And like I said, I think the company is the one setting the rules and there's just no recourse. And even if the, the employee was in the right, do you have a few million dollars to sue whoever holds the, the assets formerly known as Twitter to fight for your right for them not to sue another company with the patent that you invented? Right. I don't think you do unless you're rich. So not a great system. Uh, but on the pharmaceutical front, uh, Jonathan Lundell wrote me in with a few more links. For- <laughs> on the, the pharmaceutical front. I like this is like a news show. Yeah. And now uh, on to pharmaceuticals. Dean Baker is an economist <laughs> who I linked to last week. I think a couple of his things. There's more Dean Baker articles. I hope they're not the same, too. I looked at them and read part of them. They didn't seem to be the same. But Dean Baker kind of says the same thing in a lot of different places. Uh, but I'll just uh, these are in the show notes. One is about how to lower the price of prescription drugs. Uh, and the other uh, is another uh, theory on how we can pay for things. So here's here's the how we could pay for it question. Again, this is Dean Baker. His his opinion, he's a strong proponent of, of ditching the current system of pharmaceuticals. Uh, this is quoting from his thing. 
If drug prices in the United States were to fall by 70% in the absence of patent protection, it would amount to a savings of more than $140 billion a year given 2005 spending levels. So what he's basically saying is like, all right, so if you, if you, can't, if you don't have patents, we can't charge as much for our drugs, like as the drug companies say it, right? Uh, and if we can't charge as much for our drugs, then we can't afford to actually research them and we can't afford to qualify them. You know, we're like, this is the system we have now. This is how we pay for our research. This is how it has to work. And if you take away the patents, we can't charge the money we charge. So like, so he's saying, basically, say you took away patents and everyone has to sell their drugs. Sla- prices slashed. You know, their prices fall by 70%, a huge decrease in the price of drugs, right? Uh, what he's looking at is like, well, what does that mean? For That means that there would be a savings of $140 billion a year. Who Who is saving that money? The people who are buying the drugs don't have to spend $140 billion that they used to have to spend. That's a lot of money, Yeah. right? And as he points out, this is almost six times as much money as the industry claims it is currently spending on research. Since half this money may go to research copycat drugs of little social value, the savings from eliminating drug patents in the United States may be more than 10 times as large as the spending necessary to replace the useful research performed by the pharmaceutical industry. This gets into political stuff of like, all right, so what? So if the, if the prices drop and those drug companies can't uh, afford to do the research anymore, we apparently have a windfall of six times as much more money in the economy but that money belongs to the citizens because they didn't have to buy the drugs. And now, like, the, the consequences of this is everybody's saying, oh, look at all this savings. We can more than make up for the research. We, we can we can six to, six to ten times we, uh, their budget we have in this excess money. Ah, but this excess money, unfortunately, belongs to the citizens. And once you say, and then you just raise taxes uh, uh, enough to get that money out of the citizens, and then the government can completely fund research and still have money left over. And as soon as you say that, people get angry about, you know, who does that money belong to? But... Like there's so much money floating around involving this thing. It's, it's just a question of who gets to keep it and who and what it gets used for. So if prescription drugs went down in price and the drug companies couldn't afford to do the research anymore, there is more than enough new money floating around in the system to make up for that lost research. The question is, how do you get that money to pay for research? Because it's in the hands of individual citizens and not in the hand of a big company that does research. Uh, so do you give it to the government and the government does the research or, you know, I this is in the context of prescription drugs cost too much money, not like patents or anything like that. It's just like the prescription drugs talks too much money. Why do they cost too much money? And well, they cost a lot of money because they have monopoly rights to the thing. Why do they have monopoly rights? Well, they need monopoly rights. Otherwise they can't do the research. And then you circle back around and say, wait a second, do you really need this money to do the research? Uh, what if we took away patents and you didn't have that right? And you know, it's, it's quite a thing. So read all about Dean Baker. He's obviously strongly on one side of this issue. Uh, when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry. We'll shift off patents now onto copyright slightly. Hmm, Let's do a quick sponsor break as we shift topics. All right. Shopify.com. It's important, by the way, that you go to shopify.com slash five by five because that will do two things. It will show that you support this show. We'll demonstrate that to the world and it will also get you a coupon which will extend, I believe, the coupon. They change it. They change what it does. But I believe that coupon five by five will uh, get you three months free instead of just their regular one month free. Uh, But Shopify, it's an easy to use online store builder. You can totally customize the design. It has a secure shopping cart. Uh, They've they've got something like 25,000 stores, including the 5x5 t-shirt store. When we sell those, I've always used Shopify uh, because they make everything so easy. Do you know what PCI DSS compliance is? I don't either but they have a level one PCI DSS compliant thing. Apparently you need that. They do all that. 
you can plug them right into any of your favorite, you know, if you have authorized.net, if you just want to use PayPal, it doesn't matter. It will plug into all of that. They've got shipping calculators. If you want to charge people a specific shipping amount based on the weight of something that they're ordering. And these guys, they have a hundred plus professionally designed templates, or you can just make your own, or you can use one of the ones that they have there or the ones that they have in their little template store there and customize it yourself. These guys scale no matter what happens, and they've got tons of great examples. And this is what I would like for you to go and look at. Go to Shopify.com, and there's a little examples link up on the top. And you can just scroll through these, and you can see the amazing difference from one store to the next store to the next store. And you'd have no idea that these things were all running on the same platform. So I want you to go check these guys out. Shopify.com slash 5 by 5 That's your coupon code, too. And you'll get, uh, you'll get 90 days free to do business. So go check them out. And thanks very much to Shopify, very longtime sponsor. Wonderful, wonderful folks over there. So go check them out. As I said before, I think I've unknowingly purchased many things through Shopify stores. Many quality items. Yes. And uh, people are asking, will we be doing uh, hypercritical t-shirts? You have uh, approved a design. So once we get that going. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that last night. And I was thinking, who's going to want... Like, I've said this before, and you, you tell me that I'm crazy, but who's going to want a t-shirt? Don't get, are with, you going to give with, away the design? With, are you going to give... The design that we have, I say, do, are people really going to want that design? I want it. I know there are some people who want it. But I like, want it. I want my kid to get it. We I want, want to sell a lot of t-shirts. Shouldn't I pick a design or have an alternate design that is, that I think will have broader appeal? So, for example, a design that might have broader appeal would just be a shirt that has the word hypercritical on it or, or a hypercritical logo. Could be a single color. Could I don't know the details, but like that would be the only thing on the shirt. Because that... Would that have broader appeal, or would that be like I don't I don't know who's buying these things. If you want the if if they're bought by the super nerds who are just super fans and are proud of a super fandom, they're going to want the design that that we came up with, right? Yes. But if they're just kind of like I just want a shirt that I can wear around that just says hypercritical might, on it, right? And like people might if you do it in a logo kind of way, people might figure out that it must be the title of something. Like you're not just calling yourself hypercritical, right? Right. right. But it's but it's neutral, and people wouldn't think you're a crazy nerd. But maybe people want to be crazy nerds. I don't know. This will be an interesting experiment to see how well. Because this, the design for my shirt is similar, I think, to the uh, designs for the other shirts for the other shows. So we'll see how these as a unit sell. Well, because I saw it, your, your it, reports on the 5x5 five five shirts, and they did really well. I yeah, mean, it was I actually, that was our biggest sale. It was our biggest sale ever. We sold more than 600, combined, combined more than 600 shirts. And, you know, I mean, that, like, I know there's people out there that sell thousands of shirts. Uh, I we never, only had them for a week, right? Yeah, so we only did them for a week because we, we need, they needed to be to the... There's the guys in town are called Amplifier, not to be confused with the Amplified show. They're Amplifier and they do great, great work here in town in Austin and they're going to be doing them. And they said, oh man, well, if you want them to people, two people in time for WWDC, then we, we can't run them for very long. And I, because I, I was already a bit late in getting the whole thing started. I thought I had more time, but didn't. So we got them out there and they will be to people in time. But so here's my idea, John, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a version of the shirt that just says hypercritical and uh, we can unveil the shirt that we wanted and we can put them up and we can let people vote. I know you don't trust the listeners very much. 
I don't know. Voting is no good because voting will be swing totally to the to the super nerds because who's going to care enough to vote? The yeah, same people that would buy the shirts. Eh, I don't know. I don't, I'm, we'll have plenty of time to experiment. We could we could so. sell both. We could sell both, but uh, it it costs a lot more. Like if you do a small run of it, the smaller the run, the more expensive it is to get it all done. But yeah. we could still do it. Well, we'll see. We'll see how this run goes with the design that we that we agreed on, and then then we'll see. Like, all right, should we try a different design next time? Should we? Yeah, you know, we'll see if people say I would have bought a hypercritical shirt, but then I saw the design and it turned me off because I'm not a super nerd. <laughs> right. We'll see how that goes. But but I was surprised at how well the five by five the five by five shirt is the five by five logo right and that's pretty neutral like it's that that's not you don't have to I don't think you have to be super nervous people will just be like I don't know what five by five is but whatever it's a logo T shirt right, right. They, yeah they won't they won't immediately peg you as uh, you know as a crazy as nerd. being awesome yeah yes right so but that's sold very well because people want to show the support for five by five and I think it's a very tasteful design it's a nice logo so that's what I was thinking about but anyway that's we should have saved this for the after dark. Uh, you know what, but but a lot of people don't hear the After Dark. Those people aren't going to buy shirts. <laughs> Yo, you may have a point. You may have a point. All right. Uh, copyright. Copyright. I'm, su- I'm surprised more people didn't send me this link. A uh, few people did. Uh, and this is this is old, and that's why I didn't think to bring it back up. But this is worth bringing back. If you're listening, because I, I find a lot of people listening to the show, and there's like this this base of shared knowledge that I think we all have involving... I don't know, old Mac stuff, video games, uh, nerd things, things everyone knows about on the web that in reality probably is not shared amongst all the listeners. So I do like to bring these things up that everybody has heard of, but really not everybody. Uh, This is the video thing by Kirby Ferguson called Everything's a Remix. It's a four-part video series that the title pretty much explains it. It explains how everything is a remix. And it's again, it's about copyrights, not patent, but it talks about the creative process and... uh, the current state of copyright and how how artistic expression builds on previous artistic expression. So I put the link in the show notes. If you have never heard of Everything's a Remix, I would encourage you to watch it. It's very entertaining and not dry. It's not like a, a Lawrence Lessig video, although I think others are exciting too. But this is very, very engaging and interesting, and it's split up into pieces. So if you have not seen Everything's a Remix, uh, go to the show notes and find it. It's everything is a remix.info triple w everything's remix.info uh but the link is in the show notes i don't usually even enjoy this kind of video but this one has been around for a while and it's so well done and it really it's almost like what it's better than this but it's almost like if you're if your mom came to you and said what is all this stuff you do on the computer you could put her down in front of this and like they would totally get it totally get it RSA Animate also does videos like that. I send many of these videos to my mother because I know when I try to explain to her these broad, nerdy concepts, she doesn't get it. I'm, I've spent a long time trying to get her on my side of the intellectual property and patent and DRM issue. And the way I communicate to her is someone else makes an awesome, polished video like Everything's a Remix or like the RSA Animate things or even uh, Lawrence Lessig uh, things. That's his first name, right? Lawrence? I, th- I believe it is, yeah. Yeah. I send her those videos all the time. I'm sure I've sent her Everything's a Remix at least five times. It's some- tough to get people to watch them but you know she's retired so she has a little bit more time so yeah if you haven't seen everything's a remix you should watch it it's fun uh abby beckert he's written me a lot but i don't think i've tried to pronounce his name before so that was the first try i think uh wrote me about the pirate party which i mentioned in passing last time we were trying to figure out where it came from sweden sweden and you said sweden and that was correct but he says the pirate party started in sweden but they're all over the world now Apparently, they have 11% of Germany's national vote. The Pirate Party does. 
then he scolds me and says, I don't like you the way you implied that the Pirate Party is some kind of crazy nut job group. They're not. Their immediate goal is just to keep IP law from getting worse. And by worse, he means uh, to stop U.S. laws from being applied to countries that have better IP laws. I mean, and so I'm behind that, you know, that if that's what their immediate goal is, basically like, let's just stop the bleeding. Let's just keep IP laws from getting worse and worse. Let's keep let's stop U.S. laws from being applied to countries that have better intellectual property laws or, you know, just because the U.S. is always trying to strong arm people into trade agreements. It's kind of like a chain of power. Hollywood and people who create things that are under copyright uh, have a lot of money and money equals political power. And the political power translates to the U.S. government going to other countries and saying, if you want our military protection or want to be a part of our trade agreement or want us to buy stuff from you, you have to agree to RIP laws, which, by the way, are crazy and keep getting crazier. But you have to apply them to your citizens and your stuff. It's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. So the power party is simply trying to stop that from happening, which is why I imagine it can get like 11 percent of Germany's vote, because even if 11% of people in Germany don't think copyright shouldn't exist, they do think that we don't want U.S. copyright laws coming over here and screwing up our system, right? All because of some trade agreement or military agreement or whatever that's happening at the highest level of the governments. It's not something we're signing up for. So I actually kind of like the idea that a party that I think is, you know, it's more extreme than my views even because I'm still on board with copyright for the most part, although certainly not the copyright terms, uh, the length of the terms. Uh, but... I like the idea of them as a balancing force because that those little sprinter, you know, not crazy nut job, but still more extreme than the mainstream groups, that something has to be a balancing force to the massive weight of entrenched interests and status quo on the other side of this thing. So I'm sorry if I implied the Pirate Party is all entirely crazy. Uh, they're apparently, they're probably less crazy than other political groups that have acceptance in our country. All right, here's a story from Bill O'Connor. This was a cute story. It's related to copyright. I mentioned on a previous show the idea how copyright and, and patents and intellectual property is very well tied, uh, very closely tied to the march of technology. And so the, one of the examples I gave was that uh, audio recordings of music or the audio of music, no one had a right to that until we had the ability to capture that. So, you know, we had rights to like a composition. I wrote this song. I wrote these lyrics. Okay. So we had intellectual property laws, you know, hundreds of years ago that applied to that. But if you are, I said, like in Mozart's time, if you were at a symphony and they were playing the performance, nobody owned the performance of that, the audio reverberating in the air because no one had the technology to capture it. But once something exists where we say, aha, I can capture that sound and then I will play it back for you later for a fee. Now, suddenly, copyright laws, oh, oh, copyright totally has to apply to recorded music because now technology makes it possible for us to copy this thing. That was the Star Wars replicator thing. Like, what if you can copy everything? Uh, and so I, I picked, I don't know why I picked Mozart. I just tried to pick a, you know, a time a long time that people know about. Well, Brian O'Connor writes to tell me uh, about this thing. Uh, the, uh, I was saying that uh, recording, you know, uh, audio floating through the air was not a concern. He says it was a concern in one well-known case. There was a famous piece of music called the Miserere, written by Gregorio Allegri. He gave me pronunciations. So I'm still screwing it up. I'm sorry. In the early 17th <laughs> century, which was only allowed to be sung in the Sistine Chapel during Easter week and was forbidden by the Pope to be transcribed, punishable by excommunication. So it's the super special song and you're only allowed to play it in the Pope's special church on Easter week and you can't transcribe it. or Otherwise, you'll be excommunicated, kicked out of the church. Uh, bearing in mind that this was written for two choirs and only sung one or two occasions a year, it meant that transcribing the piece was no easy feat. 
And I highly recommend you listen to it to understand the complexity of the music. So I put a link in the show notes to a YouTube uh, recording of this thing. Obviously, excommunication is no longer the punishment for listening to it. Although maybe it is. Check the YouTube comments. See if anyone who... I listened to it and I was excommunicated by the Pope. Uh, Probably not a concern. So the story continues. When Mozart was a child, he was already regarded as a musical genius. And his father brought him across Europe to show off his skills in in the various courts. When Mozart was 14, he visited the Vatican during Easter and heard the Miserere and transcribed the whole piece after two hearings. The Pope was so impressed that instead of punishing Mozart, he was called to Rome and showered with praise. So so they didn't have the technology to record audio, but apparently they did have super genius Mozart, 14-year-old Mozart, who heard the thing two times and transcribed the entire thing. So again, go back and listen to that audio to get an idea of what a crazy genius Mozart apparently was. Uh... He was, he was the tape recorder of his time. I wonder if people tried to get, have legal rights to Mozart. You can't copy that into your head. <laughs> thought, thought police will get you. <laughs> so I thought that was a cute story about copyright. Uh, and speaking of copying thing, Eric Abelson sent me a link to a series of science fiction stories called The Venus Equilateral. It's a whole bunch of science fiction stories about a... Uh, interplanetary communication hub located out in space and the main one of the main devices of the story is uh, the idea that they've created a matter duplicator that uh, renders society based on scarcity obsolete according to the description here. So basically if you can it's again it's a Star Trek replicator. It's a typical science fiction story so I'm not surprised that this thing is out there. This is a story this is uh, stories written between 1942 and 1945 by the way. So you know not not a new idea. Uh, but all the short stories are examining, all right, so what happens if you have the ability to trivially duplicate any kind of matter? Apparently, this book is out of print and hard to find, but I put a link into the Wikipedia page where you can read a lot of the details about it. And if you can find the Venus Equilateral in ebook form or uh, floating around on the net, uh, I'd actually like to give it a try if I didn't have a gigantic backlog full of books. So maybe I'll just add this to the bottom of the queue. What do we have next? Oh, so here, shifting topics finally. I think we're finally off patents and copyright. But this is still in the follow-up. Uh, a while back, we talked about responsiveness in displays. There was that Microsoft Research video showing uh, differences in touch responsiveness from what we have today, cranking all the way down to one millisecond response time, uh, comparing it to the you know typical iOS tablet or smartphone response time of 100 milliseconds or more. And I was very excited by that. So Michael McCaskill wrote uh, to say there's another group of people that care very much about responsiveness of visual displays, and that is vision, psychophysics, and motor control researchers. Well, so people uh, are trying to build an artificial eye, basically. I think it's more like you're doing, doing research into how the human motor system works and the human vision system. Like, I, ah. I, I worked in a lab that did some of this research when I was back at school. Like, they, they do basic research. Like, they, you know, show you blinking lights and make you hit buttons and just trying to understand how all that works. And I, presumably also for the benefit of helping the sight impaired, but really it's just, you know, understanding the human body. Uh, and he says that... Uh, Fortunately, we benefit from the technology that, that has driven the games industry, and increasingly they're able to use off-the-shelf components instead of custom-made stuff. So they, since gaming, gaming is basically driving, their, you know, they used to have to build their own custom rigs to be able to do these type of display things, to be able to display graphics with a certain amount of speed or fidelity, and now they, they get the benefit of a lot of the gaming technology to do their experiments. Uh, but obviously they want things to be, sometimes they want things to be super responsive. Uh, and, you know, sometimes, he said, for this thing, uh, sometimes you need to achieve zero lag, uh, as some motor learning effects will break down in the presence of any perceptible lag. And so he says, this is not possible given hardware constraints and physics. 
right? But they need zero lag because they found, you know, no matter how low we get the lag, it's always not going to be non-zero. And they found that it, it throws off their experiments if there's any lag at all. So how do they do with this? They use predictions. Uh, like if your hand is controlling something, they say like, well, your hand has inertia and weight. And if it's moving in a particular direction at a particular speed, we know that it's probably going to continue in that direction. So they can predict where your, your hand is going to be later and make make a, a thing that appears to have you know zero lag when really what it's doing is predicting. Because you can't stop your hand instantly once it's moving. There is some inertia with it. And so they just make a prediction. All right, well, it's over here and it's moving this fast. I know in the next second it's going to be somewhere within this arc because it can't possibly stop instantaneously. It has to slow down. And so it's got to be somewhere. So we can make a prediction and then correct the prediction based on the actual data, right? Uh, and he says this sort of thing can't deal with like non-analog signals like button presses because then it's either all or nothing. Although I can imagine you could hook up a button with a motion sensor that knows when you started to press it even before the contact is made. Uh, and so he was also asking about that the video. I had the same question about the video, and I think I said it before. Like, it doesn't look like an LCD screen, that Microsoft Research video. It looks like some sort of custom display, probably because a real display can't go down to one millisecond of latency, so they had to build their own thing. So that is kind of a custom, and it would look like it was monochrome and not color, right? So here's the, the where, where it gets interesting here. Uh, talking about prediction. In essence, this is what the human perceptual motor system itself has to do all the time. We don't respond to where we see something, but where we predict it will be in the future. And then he puts a little aside here. Insert Gretzky Apple Puck quote here. I hope everyone knows that quote. If you don't, Google for Gretzky Apple Puck and you will find it. There are non-trivial conduction and processing delays in the brain. Electrons may move through copper wires at an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, but electrochemical signals travel through nerves at velocities of only a few meters a second. So this is something I hadn't thought about, but you know, there's lag in you. It's not you're not made of wires, and even if you were made of wires, you'd still be limited by something less than the speed of light. But chemical signals from like your nerves up to your brain and stuff, they travel at speeds of a few meters a second. That's really slow compared to the, the speed of signals over of copper wires, right? right. Uh, so it continues. For example, when light from your gaming display hits your retina, several screen refreshes will have elapsed before it even reaches your visual cortex, let alone before the brain can then make any sort of response to it. So this is how many fra- frames of lag is in your eye-brain system. It doesn't even get to the visual cortex of your, frame, uh, of your brain before several other frames have been displayed. Uh, so he says... Is the, fr- the brain is always operating 100 to 200 milliseconds in the future to compensate for its inhal- inherent delays. This is where Michael should have added to his email, did I just blow your mind? Because <laughs> he did. Yeah. I didn't, didn't think about this. The fact that like, oh, you're worried about your lag in your game system and your lag on your plasma TV and stuff. Two frames, two or three frames have gone by before the signal reaches the part of your brain where it will be processed. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm, I'm being cheated out of my reality that I thought I had. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess how easy common, we would be to be fooled when the robots take over. They'll be so much faster. Yeah, but this is like com- you know common knowledge in the research communities. But we tend not to think about it, like the incredible inherent lag in, in our in our wetware, right? <laughs> and the fact that we are that, as he says, the brain is always operating 100 to 200 milliseconds in the future. Otherwise, how could you possibly do anything? You can't make reactions. It's you know in in airplane parlance, it's called chasing the needle. Where if you're if you're looking at your controls. Uh, like your your dials on your airplane display, and it's like, oh, this dial's going down. I'm tilting to the left, or the altitude is dropping. I better I better compensate for that. Oh, now the dial's going the other way because the the control the dials have some lag. They only they don't reflect the uh, position and velocity of the aircraft instantaneously. So if you look at those dials and try to react to them, you will be forever chasing the needle. You will 
make a change to compensate and then keep looking at that needle and saying, is my compensation working? Is my compensation working? And by the time the needle starts to move back, now you've overcompensated and you keep going back and forth. That chasing the needle thing. Well, our, our brains get around that by not just reacting to the stimulus they got because they, you know, that they, they, it wouldn't work well if, if you reacted to that stimulus as if it was right now. Everything in the brain has to do with, okay, well, that's, this signal has been processed, but many things have happened since then. So based on what I've seen in the past, I think, you know, the ball is going to be here, or I think I should press the button now, or, you know, and like we are always, our brain is forever compensating for all these delays in our wetware to make us successful, to be able to do stuff in games, like figure out when to hit the button to, you know, hit the fire button or kick or whatever, uh, based on past events extrapolating into the future, which is probably another reason that like computer vision is terribly difficult because it's not just a matter of seeing things and taking action based on it. You have to have some sort of much higher level knowledge about the world and how it works in order to predict what the state of the world is going to be like by the time your body gets to react to whatever it is that you saw several hundred milliseconds ago. So this was my favorite email of the week. Thank you, Michael McCaskill for bringing the interesting things in your world into our world. Uh, I still, this is, uh, this, you would think, oh, doesn't that make you not be so picky about like the delays in your software and like the, the, the delays on the input lag on your, your high definition television? No, it actually makes me more angry that there are delays because like I have my own delays and I can't eliminate those. So let's fix, <laughs> fix the ones in your stupid display. <laughs> and that's, that's also kind of like why, uh, so we grew up in a world that, uh, where a lag is only a result of physical things like inertia and stuff like that. So when we move things on a screen, the 100 millisecond lag there is perceptible. Like, why isn't that square following my finger? Why, when I scribble in this iPad drawing app, does it, it, the line not exactly pin to my finger? But if we existed in a world that had pervasive, that had a pervasive extra 100 milliseconds lag, that wouldn't bother us at all because it would be status quo. Because everything we do has the lag and you know applied by our bodies. But then when we get this extra layer of lag on top of it, that's why it feels slow. So maybe the solution is to make everything in the entire universe that we interact with have an extra 100 milliseconds lag, and then our iPads will feel exactly completely responsive because our brains will have grown up in that environment and be compensating for them. Well, we may have to wait for evolution. It might just not be entirely a grown-up thing. So so that means uh, start volunteering to have your baby grow up in the matrix where everything has 100 milliseconds lag and see how it affects their brain. Sign up for that right away. Wouldn't you think this would support people's arguments that uh, our brains are capable of multitasking more than we think, and the people, the naysayers who say multitasking is bad or multitasking, as you say, is that, bad? I mean, what does this play into that at all in your mind? That entire argument is completely drowned in semantics about what do you mean by a task? Because cer- <laughs> certainly, like, it's not as cut and dried as like processes on a computer. We always want to p- apply some simplified model like it's processes on a computer. I'm doing two things at once. And we define things in ways that really has no meaning, like talking on the telephone and writing something. Those are two, like the things are defined by the things we have trouble doing at once. We define talking on the telephone and writing an essay as two separate things because who can do those both at once, right? But it's only because we can't do those things both at once that they're separate tasks. Whereas listening to music and writing for some people, aren't two separate things because you can do them at once, you know, or uh, like bre- remembering to breathe and holding your body erect and also reading are not separate things. It was like, come on, that's, you know, it's completely it, all the definitions are based on the way things are. And then we try to back solve for like multitasking. So they, <laughs> all these things that 
people say, uh, you know, talking about multitasking, we all understand what we mean by that. And it's useful to have that conversation in terms of interruptions and productivity and stuff like that. But when you get down to like how the brain works and stuff, I think that's uh, the, the definitions don't match up well enough and you have to go off into an entirely different realm. And, and the, the bottom line is that we just don't really understand how the brain works in detail in so many different ways. So it's very difficult to talk about it in, in any meaningful way without lots of kind of hand-waving and modeling. And yeah, we're a long way from understanding what's going on there. Uh, I think we do know enough now to know that everything that we've ever built does not operate quite the same way as the brain does. And many people have tried to get closer to that in some tiny little way, but I don't even think we can completely describe the operation of a neuron yet. So we're a long way from, you know, we get better at that all the time. New things are discovered all the time, but we've got a long way to go before we have any understanding of how the brain works uh, to the degree that, like, the same way we know, like, you know, gears in a machine work or processes in an operating system. We're far from that. So the Mac. Finally, we, we are through the follow-up, I believe. Well, no, almost. But we're at least we're on to the Mac portion of the follow-up. Only 67 uh, minutes in. That's, that's not so bad. Well, why don't we do our last sponsor, thank them, and then we can... All right. Put the pedal to the metal. Squarespace.com. This is everything you need to create an amazing website. I've been moving my stuff over to them, trying to get everything, well, besides 5x5, which is custom CMS, but pretty much everything else that I've built, if I can move it there, I'm in the process of moving it there. They Basically, what they are, fully hosted, completely managed environment that allows you to create and maintain, and that's key, a beautiful website, a blog, portfolio, whatever, Anyone who, anyone who wants to make a website that looks good and is easy to update and is easy to, to just maintain in general, you want to consider these guys. You have full control over your content. You can build a regular website. You can build something that has these beautiful... They have these great built-in features like their image gallery. You want to throw, You went on a vacation. You went and your kid graduated and you're making a blog for your family. You run a school thing and there was some big event. You want to, Whatever it is. All of this stuff, like building in an image gallery, built in. It has a social integration, so you can automatically tweet stuff. You can automatically post it to Facebook. It's all built in. They get another thing for geeks like us. We want to know the analytics, who's going to the site. Yes, you can do things like that with uh, Google Analytics and other things, and some of those are free. But this is all built in, and it shows real time traffic. They've got an iOS app. They've got an Android app. They have these really awesome importing. So if you've been out there using another platform for a while, they've got a built-in importer. It'll take the content that's out there in your other site. It'll suck it right in. <laughs> no sound effects, though. In fact, I told them they need to have a sound effect while it's happening. They haven't put it in. Go to their examples page, and you can see tons and tons and tons of different examples, and you'll look at these, and you'll say, this is all from Squarespace? Yeah, it is. I've moved a bunch of stuff over recently. The 5x5 blog is on Squarespace. Bigweek.co, that's on Squarespace. I want you guys to go and check it out. When you do, you have to use the URL. I have this in the show notes, but it's squarespace.com slash five by five. Okay, so that that is the URL you want to use. Why? Help support the show. And now here's something that we do for you. You use Dan sent me five because this is the fifth month of the year. That will get you 10% off. When you go in, if you sign up for a year, if you sign up for a year, you get a discount, but you get a free domain name. That's yours that gets connected up to your site. And you use my coupon code, Dan sent me five, you get another 10% off. So go there, squarespace.com slash five by five and get set up. 
Now it occurs to me that I can see the uh, biologists furiously writing me now about the tremendous amount of knowledge about how uh, we have about how the neuron works. So for the people who don't know much about biology and thought what I was saying is that we have no idea how the neurons work. We know a lot about how neurons work. It's just that we're continually discovering new things. And I don't think any scientist would say that we completely understand everything about how a neuron works. Uh, we're getting closer all the time. But that, that was my point that we are still working on like still making new discoveries about how what we think is the building block of the brain, how the individual piece works, let alone how the interactions of the billions of them work together to you know, provide emergent behavior that defines us. Uh, we're still working on everything at the same time, but but what I was saying is we don't still have complete understanding of the individual component piece. I don't know if I dug myself in deeper there. We'll see what kind of feedback. <laughs> right. That, that's a thousand emails right there. If I, if I was Marco, I would say, please don't email me. But I, I do want you to email. That's why I don't say that. No, I do you're, want you to encourage it. I, that's right. I have no problem reading your email. And has not yet reached the volume where I can't read all of it. Although the patent stuff, it wasn't, again, it wasn't the number of emails. It was the length. Lots of long emails. All right, Mac OS X. What, how did this come up last time? I think it was in the discussion about the new MacBook Pros, which we will discuss in the next little item here. Uh, but I was uh, talking about the retina displays on the MacBook Pros, or any Macs for that matter. And I was saying how uh, that's all well and good, but so far Apple hasn't fielded a version of Mac OS X that can handle, you know, high DPI mode, the, the pixel doubled retina display type of thing that they do on iPhones and other iOS devices where we just take the screen and keep the screen exactly the same size. We just jam two, twice as many pixels in there. Well, on an existing Mac screen in Lion, you can trigger high DPI mode and it just draws everything with twice as many pixels. So if you had a window that was filling uh, that was exactly half the area of your screen and exactly the same aspect ratio and you turned on high DPI mode, suddenly that window would fill your screen. Uh, you know, people say it makes everything bigger. Well, it, you know, it's physically it does make it bigger, but the Retina Max would simply double the number of pixels. And then when you turn high DPI mode, everything is back to the normal size. Because if you take an existing, it's very, I find it very difficult to talk about this. And I wonder if people don't aren't following either. Like you and I intuitively understand what I'm talking about, but the words are all overloaded, like size, length, and resolution and stuff. So uh, I'll try it one more time. If, so if, you, if you have a retina display, that means you take, uh, say you take your existing Mac screen that, that uh, you have now, and you take every single one of the individual pixels, and you break it up into four equally sized pixels. That would be a retina display. And the way the operating system has to work is, okay, don't just treat this as a display where every pixel becomes four pixels. Because if you did that, the menu bar would be microscopic because suddenly the menu bar, say it's like 16 pixels high. The menu bar would be still 16 pixels high, but those pixels are half the size of previous pixels. So the menu bar would be half the height and everything would be microscopic. So the way it works in iOS and the way presumably it'll work on Mac OS X is they say, okay, well, we're, if you have a retina display uh, and you go into high DPI mode, we will draw everything with twice as many pixels. So instead of the menu bar being drawn with 16 pixels high, we'll draw the menu bar 32 pixels high. So it will physically be the same exact size as the equivalent non-retina display, but it will be drawn with more detail, right? And so high DPI mode, I was saying, and I, I, I was saying I do this in all my Mac OS X reviews, I would trigger either, you know, 2x scaling or high DPI mode or whatever, and I would take a picture of text edit and show how it doesn't quite look right. It has at various times look incredibly awful and nonsensical or just, you know, not quite right. So in the line review... I had a screenshot of text edit 
it looked pretty good, but there were some elements that were still chunky and scaled weird. And there was one element that I thought was a drawing error, but someone pointed out to me that that's just actually how the widget is drawn. The color picker well is a rounded rectangle, and inset in the rounded rectangle is a non-rounded rectangle, and I thought that had to be a drawing error. But as I look at the normal size one, uh, it, I guess that's just the way they draw that widget. Uh, but anyway, it did look, still looked a little bit chunky, and that's his tech set, the simplest of all applications. You go into high DPI mode and just field a bunch of third-party applications, you get all sorts of crazy drawing errors, and it's not uh, too good looking. So James Dorsey was the first person to point out to me that that was Lion 10.7.0. Apple has apparently quietly upped their game, and in 10.74, if you open TextEdit and turn on high DPI mode, it looks a hell of a lot better. Like those those jaggy triangles are replaced with like they've been updating their assets to to look correct. And I, I don't know if you wander around every single application in high DPI mode and see how they all look, but like they've been making progress. And so what I was saying about the Retina Max, whether they be laptops or whatever, is that Apple can't certainly can't or probably wouldn't field a Mac with a Retina display until the OS can support it. And I was saying that at, the first time the OS is likely to support it is Mountain Lion, which is late summer. So that means no new Macs with Retina displays until late summer, right? Well, if they've been just working really hard behind the scenes to get 10.7.4 or maybe 10.7.5 or whatever, like one of the incremental Lion releases, to support high DPI mode and not make everything look all gross and broken, uh, it's I, I've now come around to the idea that they could perhaps push out a new line of Macs with Retina displays that ship with 10.75 or whatever, uh, or even 10.74 for all we know. I haven't done enough poking around to see how all third-party apps do with it. With Retina displays and, you know, that you can enable because the, the thing, I, the reason I was saying they wouldn't do it is like if they give you a Retina display and then just say, well, you can't really take advantage of it. We're just going to treat every four pixels as a single pixel. And until we come out with a new version of the OS, uh, you're not going to get any more details in your, like your letter curves. It's not going to be made of a smoother curve. We're just it's going to be made of four pixel blocks everywhere. Um, because, as people point out with the iPad three, when you do that, it doesn't even look as good as a non-retina display. So that, that would seem like a step down. So, I'm coming around to the idea that it's possible to ship a Retina Mac with 10.7 something on it, and not have it look horrendous. Uh, certainly, it might still be easier to wait for 10.8 because presumably they've got more changes there. But but who knows. So thanks, James, for pointing that out. Uh, now, speaking of the MacBook Pros in particular, we talked about the wedge shape versus the uniformly thin shape. These are all just rumors at this point. Uh, and I was saying how I really hope they go for a wedge shape because I want the back end of it to be really thick, thick enough for an Ethernet port because I like Ethernet. You like Ethernet. Yes. Uh, so two things on this. One is that there was a story someone sent me from 9to5Mac. It's a rumor from last year about how Apple scrapped the 15-inch MacBook Air. Like when they were introducing the MacBook Air as the current line of them, the, the 11-inch and the 13-inch, they also had a 15-inch uh, all ready to go. And there's like pictures and there was video, but it was pulled like the parts. Of things. See, it's just like the existing 13 and 11-inch Airs, but it's 15 inches. Uh, but they didn't ship it apparently because they had problems with the hinges. Again, right. these are completely unsubstantiated rumors. Don't put too much weight in them. Uh, but the idea that they were going to make a fit, like, why why didn't they have a 15-inch Air? That's a question that most people don't ask. Like, oh, you got the 15-inch MacBook Pro, then you've got the, you know, the Air is all about being, why didn't they feel the 15-inch Air? They could have kept the MacBook Pros, but hey, you want a 15-inch screen, but you don't need an optical drive, you don't need all those things, why not have a 15-inch Air? Well, this this rumor goes that they had problems with the hinges and that the hinges uh, weren't up to the task. Like, they use the same hinges on the 11 and 13, and they weren't up to the task with the bigger 15-inch display. Doesn't that sound a little fishy to you? 
Yes, it sounds totally fishy. All all rumors should be taken. At, you know, do not assume these things are true at all. Like people, I think feel like naive people say, "Well, I read it on a website; it must be true." But if you <laughs> if you have you know de- decades of experience reading Apple rumors, people just make stuff up. They, like they make it up. Like the sites don't make it up. People make it up, and then they email the sites and pretend to be someone they're not, and and then the sites publish it. Like, can so- you can you imagine John, the engineer, sitting there in the app in the secret Apple lab with the hinge and saying, "Huh." I guess the the screen is too heavy and these hinges won't do the job. I wish there was some kind of simulation program we could <laughs> yeah, have no, used to determine that these hinges wouldn't support the weight of the screen at a 15-inch size before we went ahead and started building these things. Yeah, and the thing is, like, uh, even though there are programs that do that, like that's what car manufacturers use to figure out, or plane manufacturers for that and matter, can now, can now tell if their plane would fly before it has ever hit the air. Right. And, like, they, have these ama- they can design an entire plane, and the first time it flies is the first time it's ever flown, and it was all simulated. We have amazing technology, but that technology is not necessarily brought to bear by the people designing laptop cases, even Apple. Not even so Apple? I- so I don't. I, I'm sure some of it is, but I, I don't have problem uh, believing plausibly that there could be a physical design problem with the design that doesn't manifest itself until they start making prototypes. Because that's mm. what Apple does. I think uh, rather than doing sophisticated computer, like they kind of design it, they make prototypes, they fill around with them, they test them, they Makes redesign, sense. like they iterate. Now, this specific instance, who knows what the truth is in this? But uh, I think this kind of thing, this 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 type of thing, probably happens all the time. They, like. Got, you know, you talked about in, in the very Steve Jobs books of all the prototypes I've got laying around Johnny Ives, uh, right. you know, design studio. Like they're trying about how they feel, but they're also trying out like see how rugged this is. Let's torture test it. Let's let's see if like you remember the uh, the MagSafe cords that were fraying and everything. Like sometimes you know, sometimes they sneak out, sometimes they don't. But they're testing them, and uh, if they have them frayed, the next version doesn't have them frayed. Like there was that link. Oh god, I don't have this in the show notes. Uh, maybe you can find it. Did you see that big story about the uh, DC power AC to DC power supply for an iPhone? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. That's that's something. Let me see if I can find this. Yeah, was this on Geek? I found it at geeks.com. It's it was linked everywhere, and you got to dig to find okay. the original. But it was right. someone someone had taken apart the little iPhone right. charger thing. Like it's a it's a it's a plug that goes into your wall, and then it's a little tiny square that that plug is in, and then there's a wire, and then a dock connector. So right. it's just for charging your iPhone. And they were showing how did you get an AC to DC converter into that little tiny thing and. The design of it is extremely clever and interesting and way more complicated than you might think it is. And this article goes into great detail about it. Uh, and one of the things that was brought up in the article is that there was some sort of class action lawsuit or something. I don't know if it's a lawsuit, but it's some, there was a problem with these plugs where you could pull them out of the wall and the the little prongs that go into the slots in the wall might stay there and not come with the plug. And that's really bad because now you have a <laughs> a metal item connected to the main electricity of your house poking out of a plug and if you were not very thoughtful or not very smart you might grab that metal thing and then you know electrocute yourself and bad things happen so i found the article it's on ken sheriff's blog and it is called apple iphone charger teardown quality in a tiny expensive package it will be in the show notes yes and so that that is interesting in and of itself but the the idea that they manufactured this plug and the prongs weren't securely fastened enough that's my memory of it i read earlier in the week uh, so in later versions like apple recalled these or whatever and made a new version of it and in later versions they totally cemented those plugs there like they made it like m- they made a big metal flange on the plugs and then they molded the plastic around it and this guy tried to like say, take some pliers and try to yank the plugs out of uh phone chargers from like samsung and apple and everything and they say how oh, the the Apple ones came out, the old Apple ones came out with less of a fight, and the Samsung ones came out easily, but the new Apple ones, you could literally not get them out of the plastic. You had to mangle the plastic to get them out. <laughs> so that's the type of manufacturing thing where, like, 
no, no matter what happens, like when you make a physical product, unforeseen things come to pass. Even the amazing design detail that goes inside the ACDC components, which again, you should read about, uh, someone forgot to say, oh, we should really cement these little metal prongs in the plastic better. And so they made a new version. So I, I have no problem believing that physical ailments involving hinges or any other moving parts could come up and that could cause a line of products to be canned. But the reason it, canning the pro, line of product, like that's why it wouldn't be there on launch or whatever, but we would have seen a 15-inch air by now if they thought it was still a good idea. Or at a certain point, they're like, well, you know, let's just forget this 15-inch air. The 11 or 13 are fine. We have some, un, you know, we have some problem with the 15-inch fine. Uh, and then after that, they're like, well, at this point, why don't we just wait for the next generation of MacBook Pros, which will be thinner anyway. Like, that's just, that's what happens in business. Like, you just have to make decisions. Do we, do we keep trying to pursue this? Kind of like the white iPhone, which that was a more public, embarrassing thing because Steve Jobs went up on stage and said, these will be shipping in 30 days and not so much, right? We don't know what the details are there, but obviously it's like, you know, they had some sort of unforeseen problem and they thought they could resolve it and didn't quite. So uh, that might have happened with the 15-inch air. Uh, now, well, this is in between. I'll go to the, the Wi-Fi issue later. So the, I was asking for an Ethernet port because Wi-Fi is slower than gigabit Ethernet. And it seems silly to me to use Wi-Fi to try to transfer files between two computers that are 10 feet from each other when it's way faster over Ethernet. Uh, and many people pointed out to me that nobody cares about big file transfers. Nobody has Ethernet ports. Nobody has Cat6 in their house. And if they do, it's not gigabit anyway. Uh, all of which is true. And I think I mentioned myself, I know that Wi-Fi is getting faster, but right now that doesn't help me because I have I actually even have an older router that's not even up to date with current standards, right? So Wi-Fi eventually will get faster. Uh, but a lot of people wrote in about new Wi-Fi standards that are faster, specific Wi-Fi standards that are faster. And as I said... I'm sure Apple doesn't care that I want an Ethernet port. I just wish they did care. But as far as what Apple is going to do, there is a lot of historical precedent and reasonable arguments to be made that Apple is going to ship their new line of laptops, if they possibly can, with the new faster Wi-Fi standards, so 802.11ac, which, you know, it's been called gigabit Wi-Fi. It promises more than gigabit speeds, and who knows what it will be in real world, and it has all sorts of limitations involving... Nasty things like analog signals and distances and interference and all that good stuff. But the point is, it's a way faster Wi-Fi, and it's close enough to Ethernet that I probably wouldn't be too annoyed that I had to use it instead of, of gigabit Ethernet. But the standard is not completed yet. Uh, so everyone's like, well, if the standard is not ready yet, we'll have to wait for the standard to be ratified, and then Apple will come out with it, because Apple's a very conservative company, and they don't, like, they don't even have USB 3 yet. So Apple's so conservative with their stuff. And on the Wi-Fi front... Apple has not been conservative. Apple was one of the first companies to come out and heavily push Wi-Fi in its products, whatever the original 802.11 standard was. It was like A and B, I think. Uh, you had Phil Schiller jumping onto uh, a uh, inflatable bag on a stage, Steve Jobs demonstrating the true meaning of power. And then you had, even for like the 802.11n, Apple shipped the 802.11n hardware before that standard was ratified too. So I have no problem believing that Apple is going to ship Macs with 802.11ac before the standard is ratified. And if anything, it's even more likely this time because the people involved in ratifying the standard have been more careful uh, about compliance so that people who make devices before the standard is ratified are more likely to be in compliance or be able to be in compliance with like a firmware update or something than they were with 11n because 11n, some of the people came out of the gate early and had some problems with compatibility, although Apple didn't. Apple was, uh, you know, more conservative in that area. So uh, Apple shipped N products before it was ratified. Apple shipped Wi-Fi very early. 
if this stuff is ready enough, I would say 802.11ac in the new versions of Apple's laptops as soon as Apple can do it feasibly, even if the standard isn't ratified. And that pretty much obviates the need for an Ethernet port for anybody except for me, who would still feel sad that I'm sending radio signals three feet to my base station <laughs> just to transfer a file. Right. Uh, and speaking of Ethernet, now Nathan Ferguson wrote in to say that, uh, you know, given the Thunderbolt display can send Ethernet over the Thunderbolt cable, couldn't you just make a, a dongle or an adapter? Yeah, you could, but I don't, I don't like dongles. I don't like adapters. I just want the port on the machine. Like a dongle is something you have to carry around and remember to bring with you and, and remember not to leave in when you put the thing in. You know, it's, it's no good. I'd, rather have, I'd still rather have a real Ethernet port. And the thing is, the thing with the 15 inches, I think there's room for it, especially if you go wedge shape. I think you've got the room. Just put the port on there. But they probably won't. And final bit here, unless I decide to complain about my hardware woes, which maybe I will, is one final anonymous tidbit about Mac Pros. One final sad anonymous tidbit. Yes, I about asked Mac you before Pros. the show if you would have any comments about Mac Pros. You, you were, we were not yet decided. Yeah, so I can't say where this source is from or who it is because they didn't want to be identified on the air. But I have heard from a source that has no providence or reliability whatsoever, so don't put too much stock in it. But hey, I'm just putting this out there, that Apple has requested certain retailers in certain places to remove Mac Pros from the store display. Uh, and that this tipster claims that this is something that's not usually done when new products are on the way. So there's two, two pieces of completely unverified information. One, that Apple itself has instructed retailers to remove uh, Mac Pros from store display. And two, that when, if new, when new products are coming, Apple does not issue this directive generally. Provenance, not providence. Yes, this, it's a pronunciation difficulty there. KJ Healy, thank you for the correction. What, so, do, you, what do you make of this? I don't know because I don't have any actual information. Like I don't count this. This is just a random anonymous tip and there are many random anonymous tips. I bet you can find a million stories about Mac Pros being canceled and the Mac Pros being imminent if you simply Google search for them. So in the absence of any real information, all I have are my hopes and dreams, Dan. And obviously, I strongly, strongly hope that they make a new Mac Pro. I really, really want one. I want it to have USB 3. I want it to have all the new, uh, you know, the the Xeons built on the new process is also called the Ivy Bridge. I don't know if the, the code name is the same. Uh, I don't care if it has optical drives. They can get rid of the optical drives if they want, although one would still be nice because it is the Mac Pro. Uh, I want it to have Thunderbolt. I just, you know, I want my, my new Mac Pro. I want it to have a big honking video card, the most expensive video card that Apple could possibly jam in there that's still not too loud. <laughs> I really want one. Yeah, uh, I can tell. And I do but, too. But I, I see all the reasons why Apple would get out of that business. The same they got out of the XServe business. Lots of people probably wanted more XServes. Well, I don't know if lots of people, but some people probably wanted more XServes. And Apple said, no, we're, not, we're done with that. Uh, and so, you know, if I had to be a betting man after 600 days or whatever the heck it is, I, I would bet that the Mac Pro is going away, but I just don't want that to be true. Like, and, and I don't think it's overwhelming. I think it's like, you know, barely maybe 51% chance that the Mac Pro is going. But after, after I think it's 600 days or something, after so long, like, it's just hard to believe they're going to say, okay, and here are the new Mac Pros, or not say it at all and just silently update them. So so I'm, I'm a pessimist on the future of the Mac Pro, but I really hope that I'm wrong. And many people keep asking me in the chat room and in email and otherwise, 
if they can the Mac Pro, are you going to build yourself a Hackintosh? I, I don't think I will. Because that, that's not what I'm into. I don't want to deal with figuring out how to assemble a piece, sell, assemble an ugly PC from parts or try to make an, a PC that's not particularly ugly or buy an off-the-shelf one or whatever and then somehow try to get Mac OS X on there and then make all the drivers work with it and track any errors and say, oh, this update broke my Hackintosh and I need this new one. I don't want to deal with that at all. I will not do a Hackintosh. I can't envision myself doing it. I will do something else after I cry for a long time. I don't blame you for not wanting to do the Hackintosh thing. I know people that have done it and it does take regular work. It takes regular maintenance. You've got to make sure that any time an update comes out that you can't just automatically imply it. And hey, you know, if there's a problem, you will never really know. Is it the hardware? Is it the way I built it? Is it the Hackintosh part? And that takes, your goal is not to spend more time on this stuff. Your time is to, your goal is to spend less time worrying about that kind of thing. Yeah. And speaking of that. It would be kind of cool though, wouldn't it? No. No. (laughs) The only thing cool about it would be that I would finally get to buy a a really awesome video card and not be limited by anything except like my budget. Right. Which has never been the case on a Mac. They they usually offer very high-end video cards that are usually close to the fastest video card you can get. But video cards move rapidly and very quickly, you know, you, you, the, Apple doesn't upgrade the video cards, but the, the March technology. So the Mac Pro will have the same video card for like a year and time has moved on and better video cards are out. But you can't get one of those. You can buy a third party, but you can't get it shipped with it. And the third party ones, then you're back to driver issues. And it's like, you know, I just want Apple. I'm happy with a Mac Pro with the most expensive video card that Apple offers. I've been using mine for years. I will be happy with another one like that. Please, Apple, make one. And undercutting my idea about Hackintoshes and dealing with problems are the problems i've been having with my actual legitimate 100 percent apple hardware lately this just happened last night i don't know if you saw my tweets but my wife's 13 inch macbook air connected to a thunderbolt display that had initial problems like when we first bought it in july where it would go to sleep and not wake up but then there was a firmware update to the thunderbolt display and that cured that and we haven't had any problems since that was like in the first week of ownership or week or two of ownership so smooth sailing since then great best of both worlds Awesome experience, Ethernet, connected Firewire hard drives, but a slim laptop with fast SSD in it and a big giant screen when you're sitting down in front of it. Just, you know, two thumbs up. Great. But last night, or actually, I think it was the day before that, I came and saw the computer. I saw the screen was on. I'm like, huh, why hasn't the screen gone to sleep? And then I peeked at the laptop screen where I saw the uh, unmistakable multi-language kernel panic overlay sitting on top of the screen. So that's why the screens were frozen on because the entire machine had panicked. And so I, you know, held on the power button, rebooted, and when it came back, the mouse and keyboard didn't work. And the mouse and keyboard were attached to the Thunderbolt display, the USB ports in the back of the Thunderbolt display. So I unplugged them, plugged everything back in, still didn't get my mouse and keyboard back. The mouse and key, uh, the trackpad and keyboard on the laptop worked fine, but not the ones that were connected to the display. Uh, the Ethernet also didn't work, which was also connected to the display because I had the, the Wi-Fi turned off. So I couldn't, you know, so I'm like, oh, something's wrong with this Thunderbolt display. Maybe the hardware went bad and that caused a kernel panic. So I disconnected everything from the Thunderbolt display, disconnected all the USB, the Ethernet, uh, the FireWire, and then I disconnected the Thunderbolt display itself from the laptop and just let it sit there overnight. And the next morning I came back in, I plugged everything back in, booted everything back up, and still no mouse or keyboard. So I was like, oh, this Thunderbolt display is no good. We got we to gotta bring this thing back. Uh, because obviously the, the, it works as a display. It works fine. But the ports on the back of it are not working. And this reminded me of the, the problems I was having with like the firmware update. Like the fact that the Thunderbolt display has a little mini computer inside there. It's not just a display. It's 
something that can go wrong and it has firmware and maybe there was some sort of problem or maybe just the hardware went bad, right? So I made the Genius Bar appointment and then I complained about it on Twitter, as you do. And people are like, oh, did you make sure you disconnected everything? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I totally disconnected everything. You know, I rebooted, I did this, and I, I don't know, you know what the problem is, but I did all the normal stuff that you would do. And as I'm yeah yang people, uh, after the 800th person replied to me to say, oh, did you do this, did you do that, blah, 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 I realized that a couple of people had specifically suggested one thing that I did not do. What was and that? Did, did you see my Twitter stream? I was watching it, but... I remember one part here you say, and now, is this before or after you say, and now I've had three kernel panics on the NBA? Before. Before that. Yeah, so I, it, the key, the, the clue was in this story is that I said I unplugged the USB, the FireWire, the Ethernet, and unplugged the Thunderbolt cable that connected it to my MacBook Air. What thing did I not unplug? Uh, power. Yes, Power. Now, Apple has this. Oh, look at that. And you say right here, you should have doubted me. I was just unplugging it from the Mac and unplugging all devices, removing the power plug, fixed it. Yes. So the power, like Apple doesn't put on off switches on a lot of its monitors, which really annoys me because sometimes you just want to turn the monitor off. Right. So when everything's unplugged from it, the, the monitor is dark. It is not plugged into any computers and there is nothing plugged into any of the ports on the back of this monitor. You would think that it's off. But apparently it's not because power is still connected and there's no way to turn it off off because there's no on off button. So the only way apparently to totally reset the little mini computer inside there that's handling the Thunderbolt traffic and doing all that stuff is to physically unplug it from the wall socket. (laughs) And when I plugged it back into the wall socket, hey, voila, suddenly all the ports in the back of the display worked again. Right. So I tweeted, hey, yay, this is great. Right. Uh, But what I had forgotten was that when I originally found this machine, it had kernel panics, and I just assumed the kernel panic was due to the hardware right. going bad, right? You know, because if you have some bad hardware, it's going to cause a kernel panic, right? But then it kernel panicked again, and I started to get suspicious. And I, you know, rebooted, blah, blah, came back in, started doing some Googling, kernel panicked again. And now I'm like, okay, something something is up here, right? So I still didn't know where the problem was, but I looked at all the kernel panics, and I did my Googling for one of the representative hex addresses memory addresses inside the the stack trace or inside the kernel panic log message anyway and i googled for that big giant hex string and found like 80 results and then i googled for that big giant hex string combined with the build number of the os which also is in the in the kernel panic report and i found like 77 results and so what that tell and then i you know, what that tells me is that this particular hex, hex address is only in kernel dumps for this particular version of macos 10 because adding that you know obscure build number of Mac OS X to the Google search does not massively narrow the results. Pretty much uh, out of all the results that have this hex number in it, uh, almost all of them, 90% of them, have also this build number. And I looked at them manually to just, you know, I was looking at counts, but then I looked at the manual things, and lots of people are having panics. And the things implicated in the backtrace are all over the map. It's, for me, it's always the PCI something or other. And I'm assuming it's like the you know PCI Express right. bus that's going out over the Thunderbolt that's right. that's cranky. But for other people, it's also you can just it just shows you like here are the things that are in the backtrace, and you don't know if they're the cause of it. But that's the only recourse you have if you don't understand the memory addresses, which I don't because I don't have like a symbolicated dump of the memory image where I can know what that's going on. But other people have all sorts of other stuff in there. I found a whole bunch of red herring stuff where people have Sophos antivirus installed, mm. and a, a bunch of people had VirtualBox. Uh, but I don't have any of those things, and I think those are unrelated. So it seems to me that this particular build, 10.7.4, has introduced a new kernel panic bug. I don't know what it's related to. Uh, 
I don't know if it's related to the hardware, but it's something new that like if you search for this same memory address and 1073's build number, you don't find it. You have to search in 1074. So right now I'm chalking this up to a software problem, not a hardware problem because the hardware has been fine. The hardware hasn't changed. And it, it's it's not as if everyone in the world's hardware all went bad at the same time. It's basically these these results start. If you Google for this memory address, they start uh, at the time 1074 was released and people started updating to it. So I filed a bug with Apple, like a dutiful person, providing the crash reports. The way I'm working around it now is I no longer have my keyboard and Ethernet and FireWire connected to the back of the monitor. Instead, I have the keyboard connected directly to the, the MacBook Air uh, and don't have FireWire connected and don't have Ethernet connected. And I'm just using Wi-Fi. Yes, like an animal, Dan. And, <laughs> and so this is a workaround, but it's not an ideal workaround. So assuming this is a software problem, I'm assuming they'll mark my bug as duplicate in the requisite four to six weeks that it takes them for them to acknowledge a bug report. And then I'll never hear from them again about it. Uh, but I'm hoping that 10.75 or 10.8 fix whatever this problem is, because it really is frustrating. Here is I'm not using a Hackintosh, and here is the, the possible dangers of upgrading to a point version and getting a kernel panel. And this is the first time this has happened. I don't know if it only happens with laptops. It seemed like a lot of people had MacBook Pros and stuff. But uh, the problem is still happening, by the way. If I look at the console log, I see a bunch of log messages that say, like, uh, the PCI bus has noticed a change, reinitializing, like, every few minutes. And there's nothing changing, right? So there's something flipping out inside there. But if there's nothing actually plugged into them, apparently it doesn't kernel panic. So I'm just sort of sitting in limbo now using a slightly crippled version of my current setup. I canceled my Genius Bar appointment because I don't think I've now pretty convinced that it is not a hardware problem, even though all my hardware is still under warranty. Uh, I don't think that would help. So at this point, I'm just sitting here waiting for some kind of software update or recommendation how to fix this problem. I guess I could try to boot the thing from 10.8, reconnect everything and see how it does, but I don't know what that would tell me because 10.8 is still in a developer build and whatever. So that's my depressing story about buying completely on-brand, quote-unquote overpriced Apple hardware and still having annoying yeah. problems. It kind of reminds me of the region of pain episode. Like, when is 10.4 going to get out of this region of pain? <laughs> I would think, or 10.7 rather, 10.7 has I was going to say that 10.7.4 really feels like his, it's finally settled down and the worst of the bugs are, are gone, uh, particularly with the new version of Safari that's in beta that has pretty much eliminated the reloading tabs issue that I had. But now this kernel panic thing, I don't know. These kernel panic things have happened with other builds before. They just haven't hit me. So it's kind of anecdotal because you, you know people like, oh, I'm using 10.5 and I get this kernel panic and I just could never get rid of it. For the entire life of 10.5, I never got rid of this kernel panic. And you never know, like... Is that a software problem? Do you actually have a hardware problem? Uh, it's mysterious, but it, it never gets better for these people. So maybe maybe I'm one of those people, and maybe I'm unlucky. You know, I've rarely been bitten by these big problems, but there there was one problem that I was having. I believe we talked about it, but I definitely talked about it on shows where I was having this problem with uh, a couple of MacBook Airs, my wife's and mine. Uh, but it was it was worse on the 11 where you would wake it up from sleep and it wouldn't connect to the Wi-Fi network. It wouldn't connect to any Wi-Fi network. And you'd have to basically, the way to get around it was to turn Wi-Fi off and then back on every single time. Well, it turned out this was some kind of an issue with Bluetooth because when I unpaired it with Bluetooth devices, it, I never run into trouble. And people on Twitter are always saying, well, I can't not use Bluetooth because that's how I, that's how I work. I use Bluetooth devices all the time so not using them is a non-issue and then apple did release a firmware update and uh or an os update and it did fix it 
So people had been asking me a lot, and I, I thought I would address it. But that was the first time that I was really bit by one. When you're finally bit by one of these, like you're experiencing now, you're like, this sucks. <laughs> Especially when it's your first time being bit by something like that. So what yeah, are you going to do? What are you? What, what What's your option now? I'm, I'm still keeping an eye on it because I'm trying to make sure that it really is a software problem. Like the timing and the Google results and everything just hints so strongly that this is a 10.7.4 problem. And it, uh, you know, it's like, why don't you revert to 10.7.3? It's like, I have 10.7.3 and then my time machine backup. Uh, I could revert to that. Unfortunately, my super duper backup is also 10.7.4 and that doesn't save previous versions. So reverting to super, super, super duper backup won't help. But I don't even want to revert to the time machine version going back in time to when it was on 10.7.3. Because you lose a lot of, you know, I don't want to like manually retrieve that work. I don't, I don't want to go through that process of saying, okay, well, you're, this is my wife's computer, remember? So your entire world is set back to where it was before I upgraded you to 1074. And anything you did since then, uh, can you tell me what you think those were? Or I'll have to manually diff to find them to give you those files. Like we have a workaround. She doesn't notice that it's on a Wi Fi. Uh, I will probably just plug in my FireWire 800 drives to do my time machine backups and my super duper backups. And hope that during those backups, it doesn't kernel panic again. I don't know what my solution is. Like I, I'm still backing up the crash plan, obviously. So uh, I still have a backup. And I guess I'll be able to limp along like this for a while. But it's definitely not a great situation. Uh, so I'm hoping something will come of this. I'm hoping something will come of my official bug. It seems like if it's widespread enough to, since 10.7.4 came out to have you know 80 Google hits about this particular kernel backtrace, that must mean there are many, many more people, some multiple of 80 who are experiencing this problem. And presumably Apple knows about it because every time you get this kernel panic report, you get the option to click a button and send it to Apple. And I'm just hoping that this will resolve itself in a reasonable manner. And I don't have to wait all the way to Mountain Lion for it to be resolved. Because I really hope Mountain Lion is like August 31st. It's released because as always, I hope they release as late as possible so I have time to write my review. God, I got more topics here, but I think we're actually end the show today and spare people who don't like long shows because the people who like long shows have been getting what they want. But the people who don't like them quite that long, they need to get something sometimes too. So today we will not talk about Yahoo Access or that leap demo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I will that by popular request, a lot of people have been requesting a new feature. And what people have been asking for is they love the after darks but they don't necessarily want every after dark from every show. And they've been saying, wouldn't it be great if I could subscribe to a show hypercritical, for example, and just get in that stream in that feed, the hypercritical shows along with just the hypercritical after dark. So not only would I be picking the after darks that I want, but they will come along in the same stream and I'll get them both at once. Cause we usually publish them one after another. If you don't know what an after dark is, this is what happens after uh, John and I, stop the official show and then we talk about other things that i don't know it, with this show it seems like the line between what after dark is and isn't as part of the show is kind of blurred but so be it now there is that feed so if you go to five by five tv slash hypercritical you can see the little link on the right that says hypercritical plus the after dark and we have that for all of the shows that have after darks so um you can go and do that if you'd like I haven't Actually, submitted that to iTunes, though. So you will be a cutting-edge listener if you do that. Beta tester. Beta, very much. So be warned. Skiing Rob in the newly sanctioned chat room says that he thinks that uh, hybrid feed should be a subscriber feature. Boy, these guys are always trying to make everything premium. 
Well, what I, what I would like to do for members as I slowly work on this membership system that I've been talking about is allow them to pick their own custom feeds and how those feeds would work. So they could pick their favorite shows with or without the After Darks, combine them into one feed, and that just becomes that person's individual feed that brings just what they want. I don't know if I, you know, how that's going yet, but anytime you give something, you know, you know, it gives people ideas as to how to make it better. So let me know. Let me know what you think. And there's a couple. Can we? Cl- can I close this out with a couple notes? Actually, I have one more thing. Oh, one more short thing. Let's hear it. Yeah, because this was not sorted well in my notes. One more thing on a follow up on the iPhone stuff that we talked about last time about the taller iPhone screen. Yes, and the various strategies they can use. Those rumors are still flying around. It's getting stronger. Uh, more people have been posting about them. The rumor people are saying, being more sure that it's going to be the screen is going to be taller by 176 pixels, but not wider. Uh, and I've been coming around to an idea that I think I mentioned on the previous show, and that many people have sent me in suggestions, and that has been in many of the articles about this rumor is that the way uh, you know the various ways they'll deal with you know how applications deal with screens getting small, taller, and do they get screwed up? Will they just say, "Oh, developers, you got to update your apps"? I've been coming around to the idea that. The back compatibility that it will only be opt in, and the backwards compatibility solution will be that your app gets displayed in the middle of the screen with uh, dark pixels above and below. Like that, your app behaves exactly the same as it did before. The only difference is you're not using the entire screen. And you update your app, you get to use the whole screen. But if you don't update your app, you get to run in this compatibility mode where your app looks exactly the same as it does right now. You're just not using the whole screen. Yeah. And there was some cool rumors where people were like, and if you have a white iPhone, instead of being black bars top and bottom, it'll be white bars top and bottom to try to blend in. That looks better in a Photoshop mock-up than it does in real life, but it's conceivable. Uh, but, so I've been coming around to that idea that if there is a taller screen, as the rumors seem to indicate, that the way Apple would deal with the transition is say, if you don't update your app, you will display exactly the same number of pixels as you display now. But as soon as you do update your app, you get to expand to the full screen. Rather than saying, uh, any of your apps run on this phone, we're going to stretch them out. And if your app doesn't deal with it, tough luck. You better hurry up and get that app, that new version into the app store. I've almost completely come around to that that idea. Uh, and I don't know about the changing the pixels to be white or black or whatever. But that strikes me as the most Apple-like and probably the most conservative course of action. Uh, the only bad thing is about it is like, I bought this new phone and half the apps I run, I don't fill the screen, but I think that will remedy itself so fast as, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, in most, app most apps will. changing that in, in most apps is a trivial change. And it's something that most developers could probably jump in pretty quickly and do of all the changes that could potentially come. This seems like one that most, I don't know how it would work with games and other things, but especially apps that scroll already, it seems like, you're just getting a few extra pixels and you can just, you know, I, again, I'm probably, we're probably oversimplifying it, but I also don't think when you, if you imagine the, the current, I almost said previous, but the current dimensions of the screen centered in that slightly elongated screen, right? It's, they're not going to look that bad, especially if they are black or potentially white, but especially if they're black, it's not like they're going to look this like this. It's not like you know doubling the the size of something when you play it on it when you use it on an iPad. That just looks horrific. This won't look horrific. It might not look as wonderful as something that takes advantage of the full size, but it's not going to be bad. I don't think that's a that's a big deal, and that definitely that's how Apple would. Now here's a question: Will I have been hearing things 
I've been hearing things that we are not going to see a new iPhone uh, or anything about a new iPhone at all at WWDC, that it's going to be about the Mac and that come October, that's when we will see a new iPhone. Do you, can you go on record and say if you believe that or do you, do you think that we will hear about something at WWDC? I think that's entirely plausible. I was, I, I, WC, I think the star of the show will be iOS 6, and I don't think there's any reason to pre-announce hardware. The only wild card there is if they are making the, the thing taller, like, are they going to beat around the bush and say, like, you know, you guys should really update your app so they scale better vertically, but we're not going to say why, but, you know, like, would they just pre-announce the phone? Because that, that's that's the other thing. The reason I believe this uh, centering your thing on the screen, not using all the pixels, is because some applications, as you pointed out, games and stuff like that, maybe it's just not appropriate to expand. Maybe they have a fixed size screen because that's how the game does, and they were built entirely around the size of the screen, and there's no reason for them to refresh ever, right? So you need some solution to those. You can't just, you know, there has to, the backwards compatibility solution has to handle apps that simply are never going to update. Imagine a game, for example, that doesn't even use all of the current screen, like it's a square or something. That's how the game is designed or whatever. Not all applications have to expand to fill the space so you need some sort of compatibility solution for them yeah uh, and so so if they go and the, if they announce whatever they announce to the developers developers will be highly motivated to make their apps you know tall screen savvy to use the system seven parlance but developers for whom that's not appropriate uh it's nice to have something to say to them too like oh your, your app's not going to be all broken and gross it'll still work the same way it did and everyone else will pile in to fix their apps so that by the time the phone actually does ship in the fall, regardless of when it's announced, like no one thinks it's going to be shipping like WWDC, right? So when the phone finally does ship, maybe all the apps are already updated and it's a moot point except for those apps that are just never going to be updated for the taller res because it's simply not appropriate because they're a game with a fixed viewport or in particular, you know, or just the developer has gone on to other things that are just never going to be updated. Like so 100% backward compatibility. Uh and and they can get around the, oh, well, I bought this fancy new phone and the apps didn't fill it because I think developers will, if Apple does the announcements in the right with the right lead time, have plenty of time to fix their apps. If they don't actually announce any hardware, they could be all cagey and coy in the sessions about, hey, you should really make sure your stuff scales vertically. And because there may be different, you know, not just vertically, they would frame it as like your app should really be flexible with regard to the size of the screen. And here are the best practices to make your app flexible to be to, for the size of the screen, both width and height, because remember, it's not just height. When you turn to landscape, it becomes width, right? So if you have an app that works in both orientations, you have to be flexible in both directions. So I can imagine WWDC sessions strongly emphasizing that your app should be able to do this without ever saying why. But I can also imagine them pre-announcing the hardware and it ships in the fall or whatever. But uh, the rumor you said about uh, no hardware announcement, just iOS 6, that, that gets my, if I had to bet, that's what I would bet on. Again, not not overwhelmingly, not you know ninety percent chance, but I would say like fifty one, fifty two percent chance. It's all about iOS six. No hardware is announced. Separate hardware announcements in the fall. But we have to end now. If I'm going to end before two hours. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we got to do it. All right. So let me close this up for us. Thanks everybody for tuning in. You can go and see those show notes and all the links and the videos and everything that uh, John has carefully curated for you by going to five by five tv slash hypercritical slash sixty nine. And uh, people have already expressed on Twitter that they're disappointed that we're not making jokes that this is the 69th episode. Uh, Go there and you can see all of the links, everything John put together. Thanks very much to the lovely ladies at helpspot.com, the best help desk software in the world, for making those links uh, possible and bringing them to you. 
Would you consider going to iTunes and rating the show? It sure would help us. It always helps us, and it's a great way uh, for new listeners to find out about the show. Your ratings determine where this show appears and uh, and how. So if you like the show and you want to support it, it's a great way to do it. You can find John on Twitter at Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We really appreciate you guys listening, and uh, have a great week. You too, Dan. 